The idea of a black liberation army emerged from conditions in black communities. Conditions of poverty, indecent housing, massive unemployment, poor medical care, and inferior education. The idea came about because black people are not free or equal in this country. Because 90% of the men and women in this country's prisons are black and third world. Because 10-year-old children are shot down on our streets. Because dope has saturated our communities, preying on the disillusionment and frustration of our children. The concept of the BLA arose because of the political, social, and economic oppression of black people in this country. And where there is oppression, there will be resistance. The BLA is part of that resistance movement. The Black Liberation Army stands for freedom and justice for all people. Joanne Chesimard, a.k.a. Asada Shakur. May 1971, New York City. Along the Hudson River, high on Manhattan's left shoulder, Riverside Park was a green finger of calm, an oasis of playgrounds and gardens, a world away from the angry traffic on the parkway over by the river. That warm May evening, the 19th, the park was in bloom, a dazzle of pink and crimson on the Japanese dwarf cherry and crabapple trees. One man who lived on the park at 404 Riverside Drive was Frank Hogan, known as Mr. Integrity, who had been the New York District Attorney since taking over from Thomas Dewey all the way back in 1941. The week before, Hogan had wrapped up the longest case in state history, the trial of the Panther 21. And while the proceedings were finally over, policemen still sat outside his building around the clock. Weathermen had firebombed the home of the presiding judge, John Murtaugh, the year before. It was May 1971. No one was taking any chances. At 9 p.m., a green and white cruiser relieved the officers. Inside sat a pair of 39-year-old patrolmen, Thomas Curry and Nicholas Benetti. Darkness had fallen barely 15 minutes later when, to their dismay, a dark maverick, suddenly sped past, going the wrong way down 112th Street, a one-way street. Officer Benetti wheeled the squad car into a sharp U-turn and gave chase as the Maverick swerved left onto Riverside Drive. Six blocks south at 106th Street, Benetti managed to pull alongside the speeding Maverick. At that moment, the driver One of two or three black men inside crouched in his seat. From the passenger side, the ugly nose of a forty-five caliber submachine gun appeared. In a split second, a geyser of bullets blasted the patrol car. The windshield exploded. Officer Benetti was struck eight times in the neck, stomach, and arms. Officer Curry was hit in the face, neck, and chest. One bullet severed his optic nerve. The patrol car veered to its left and smashed into a stone staircase beneath the statue of the Civil War general, Franz Siegel. The maverick roared away, vanishing into the gloom. A few moments later, after briefly losing consciousness, Officer Benetti came to. 
Glancing to his right, he saw his partner lying outside the car, his uniform stained with blood. Before passing out once more, Benetti managed to palm the car radio. 26 Boy Charlie! 26 Boy Charlie! he murmured. We've been shot! We've been shot! Three miles north of the shooting, the eight grimy towers of the Colonial Park houses stood on the west side of the Harlem River, beside the site of the old polo grounds, the hallowed baseball stadium where Bobby Thompson hit the shot heard round the world for the New York Giants that defeated the Brooklyn Dodgers in the 1951 pennant playoff game. The Colonial Park buildings, 14 stories tall, were home to hundreds of poor black families who on sultry summer nights could gaze out their kitchen windows south across the tenements of Harlem toward the glittering office towers of Midtown. Colonial Park was a rough place, the kind of project cops from the nearby 32nd Precinct, the 3-2, entered with care. Two nights after the shootings on Riverside Drive, two officers from the 3-2, Waverly Jones, 33, and Joseph Piagentini, 28, stepped from their squad car and walked into Colonial Park to answer a call about a woman hurt in a knife fight. When the woman refused their help, the two ambled back to their car. As they did, they passed two young black men lounging against the fender of a parked car. The men fell in behind them. A moment later, the men drew pistols and opened fire. Officer Jones, who was black, was struck three times, first in the back of the head, then twice in the spine. He died instantly. The second gunman fired repeatedly into Officer Piagentini, who fell to the sidewalk, but as the gunman cursed him, refused to die. The first gunman then reached down and removed Officer Jones's thirty-eight, hefting it in his hand, feeling its weight as if he were taking a souvenir. The second gunman wrenched Piagentini's weapon from its holster, even as the dying officer flailed at him. Once he had it, he fired every bullet in its chamber into the fallen cop. Still Piagentini wouldn't die. The first gunman stepped to his prone body, pointed his own forty-five downward, and fired a single shot. Then both shooters turned and walked away. Behind them, Officer Piagentini, in his last moments of life, began crawling toward the safety of a green hedge, a trail of blood in his wake. The next morning, the coroner would count 22 bullet holes in his body. A few hundred feet away, a passerby named Richard Hill heard the shots. Running to the scene, he glimpsed what he thought to be a clump of bloody clothes on the sidewalk. Then the clump moved. Hill sprinted toward the two fallen men, snatched up a walkie-talkie from the pavement, and yelled, Mayday! Mayday! Two cops! Shot! That same evening, two packages were delivered. One to the New York Times, a second to WLIB, a Harlem radio station. Each carried a license plate, the same plates seen on the Maverick whose occupants shot Officers Curry and Benetti. The Times package also contained a 45 caliber cartridge and a typewritten message. It read, May 19th, 1971. 
all power to the people. Here are the license plates sought after by the fascist state pig police. We send them in order to exhibit the potential power of oppressed peoples to acquire revolutionary justice. The armed goons of this racist government will again meet the guns of oppressed third world people as long as they occupy our community and murder our brothers and sisters in the name of American law and order. Just as the fascist marines and army occupy Vietnam in the name of democracy and murder Vietnamese people in the name of American imperialism, are confronted with the guns of the Vietnamese Liberation Army, the domestic armed forces of racism and oppression will be confronted with the guns of the Black Liberation Army, who will mete out in the tradition of Malcolm and all true revolutionaries real justice. We are revolutionary justice. All power to the people. Three nights later, a second pair of packages arrived at WLIB. This time, the typewritten letter read, Revolutionary justice has been meted out again by the righteous brothers of the Black Liberation Army, with the death of two Gestapo pigs gunned down as so many of our brothers have been gunned down in the past. But this time, no racist class jury will acquit them. Revolutionary justice is ours. Every policeman, lackey, or running dog of the ruling class must make his or her choice now. Either side with the people, poor and oppressed, or die for the oppressor. Trying to stop what is going down is like trying to stop history. For as long as there are those who will dare live for freedom, there are men and women who dare to unhorse the emperor. All power to the people. Up at the 3-2, where detectives confirmed that both letters came from the same typewriter, and at the FBI offices on 69th Street, white men read the two notes, turned to one another, and asked, What the hell was the Black Liberation Army? More than 40 years later, a handful of historians are still asking the same question. Handful being a generous characterization of the few obscure academic papers and police procedurals that constitute all known publications on the Black Liberation Army, known as the BLA. The paucity of literature is a reflection of the deep confusion and ambivalence the BLA engendered in its heyday. Many policemen, along with BLA members themselves, considered the group a murderous black counterpart to the Weathermen. Mainstream politicians, afraid of alienating black voters, played down this talk entirely. Following suit, most of the white-dominated press dismissed the BLA as a ragtag collection of street thugs. To the press, at least, poorly educated, self-proclaimed black guerrillas who murdered policemen were not credible revolutionaries. But self-proclaimed white guerrillas from good universities who bombed vacant buildings were. At the height of its infamy, many questioned whether the BLA even existed, the theory being that every time a black militant shot a policeman, he announced himself as a member of the BLA. The group itself was maddeningly difficult to pin down. It had no leadership or structure the press could point to. No Bernadine Dorn, no Bill Ayers, not even a Mark Rudd to rely on for public statements. Other than the odd, bare-bones communique, BLA mem members were utterly mute, 
a policy its adherents have clung to for decades. Before now, one-time BLA fighters had yet to issue a meaningful word about the group's internal dynamics, much less its crimes. Now, as then, the BLA is viewed as semi-mythic, but to rank-and-file policemen who hunted its members across the country, there was nothing imaginary about the BLA. The machine guns its soldiers fired, the grenades they threw, the policemen they killed, and the banks they robbed. It was all very real. Between tokes and giggles, the weathermen may have mused about offing the pigs. But after the townhouse, they just talked the talk. To men in uniform, it was only the BLA who walked the walk. In fact, the Black Liberation Army was a credible group of violent urban guerrillas, the first and only black underground of its kind in U.S. history. In one sense, the BLA was a cluster of deadly acorns that rolled free when the mighty oak of the Black Panther Party fell and shattered. It was a splinter group of the Panthers, much as weathermen split off from SDS. In another sense, it was the logical culmination of the black power movement. After years of black revolutionaries calling for armed attacks against the police and federal government, one group, the BLA, finally followed through. How it happened is a complex story. As FBI records make clear, the Black Liberation Army was an idea long before it was a reality. Any number of 60s-era militant groups had taken some form of the name. A group of three who plotted to blow up the Statue of Liberty in 1965 called itself the Black Liberation Front. A group of eight who engaged in sniper attacks on Detroit police in 1970 called itself the Black Liberation Army Strike Force. The actual BLA was a concept of the Black Panthers. The idea of a Panther underground had existed as long as the party itself. Talk of a Black underground was a staple of Huey Newton's early speeches, and by 1968 the party's rules anticipated its establishment, stating that no party member can join any other army force other than the Black Liberation Army. Many Panther chapters offered weapons training, and several claimed to be training paramilitary units. But even at the height of the party's influence, the BLA existed only in the minds of the most militant Panthers, as an urban guerrilla force that might form in some dimly imagined future. The actual BLA emerged during the Black Panther Party's implosion in the spring of 1971, a traumatic process that prompted several chapters, most notably New York, to secede from the party. In fact, the story of the BLA is in large part the story of the New York Panthers. Hundreds of black men and women, from Harlem to Bedford-Stuyvesant, joined the New York chapter, but for the sake of this narrative, two boyhood friends mattered most. Their names at birth were Nathaniel Burns and Anthony Coston. Born in 1944, Burns was a lean, charismatic thug nicknamed Beanie in the neighborhood gangs where he fought as a teen. Years later, after changing his name to Seku Odinga, he would emerge as the most admired revolutionary of his age, 
the savvy urban guerrilla who traveled the globe, robbed banks, and engineered prison breakouts during an underground career spanning 12 years. Costin, a squat, muscled gangbanger known in his youth as Shotgun, would become Lumumba Shakur. His career would prove far shorter. Like a surprising number of people who ascended to leadership positions in the BLA, the two were the children of southern migrants who grew up in the South Jamaica section of Queens, a historically white neighborhood that during the 1950s became a favored destination for hundreds of middle-income black families streaming into New York from the Deep South. Odinga and Shakur, as they will be called, met at Edgar D. Scheimer Junior High, where Odinga recalls meeting Shakur in the assistant principal's office. Both boys were troublemakers. Odinga's father, Albert Burns, a laborer with a fourth-grade education, had come north from Mississippi in the 1930s and saved enough money to buy a two-story home, where Seku was the fourth of seven children. Like his friends, the teenaged Odinga joined a gang, the Sinners, whose members busied themselves with muggings and fistfights with rival gangs like the Bishops and the Chaplains. In 1961, when he was 16, Odinga was arrested for mugging and sent to the state prison in Comstock, New York. At Comstock, Odinga renewed his friendship with Shakur who had spent his childhood ricocheting among the homes of various relatives in Virginia, Philadelphia, Atlantic City, and eventually Queens. Both were in the process of discovering the teachings of Malcolm X. Both, however, were startled to find Shakur's father way ahead of them. As Shakur wrote, In the summer of 1962, my father came to see me. He was telling me about the family, but he seemed reluctant about something. Then my father dropped it on me, and it blew my mind, because I was thinking about how I was going to say the same thing to him. He asked me my opinion of Brother Malcolm X. I told my father that Malcolm X is a very beautiful brother, and all the brothers in prison love Brother Malcolm X. I also told my father that I was a black nationalist and a Muslim, but that I could not relate to praying. I never before saw anything that affected my father like what I just said. His facial expression became one of complete satisfaction. We must have talked for about four hours. From that day on, the elder Costin, now known as Abba Shakur, acted as a spiritual guide for his son and his friends, a role he continued for many in the Black Panthers and the BLA. Shortly after, his son adopted the name Lumumba Shakur. His older brother James, an elfin intellectual who would also take leadership positions in the Panthers in BLA, took the name Zaid Shakur. The Shakurs, in turn, introduced Odinga to Malcolm X's teachings. Abba was very, very influential. You could almost say he was the father of our little movement, Odinga recalls. People like me, Lumumba, Zaid, Lots of others later on, everybody was exposed to Abba. He sent Malcolm's writings to us at Comstock. When Lumumba finished reading, he gave it to me. Those are the first books I had ever read. It was Abba in those years in Comstock that made me the man I became later. Odinga was the first to be released in December 1963. I went in angry and foolish, 
and I came out the same way, but looking for direction, he remembers. I went in search of Malcolm and saw him preaching on a street corner. He was mesmerizing. Odinga was drifting from job to job, smoking weed and gambling, when he finally glimpsed a way to follow the vague new path he sensed lay before him. While he was visiting the 1964 World's Fair in Queens, New York, a group of beautiful black sisters at the African Pavilion asked him to model a series of dashikis and other colorful African garb. Odinga was entranced. He befriended the girls, began wearing dashikis, and soon learned to make his own, which he sold to friends. A year later, he shed his identity as Nathaniel Burns and, inspired by the Ghanaian nationalist Sekou Torre, legally changed his name to Sekou Odinga. When Shakur emerged from prison, he joined Odinga's circle. The two took an apartment in Harlem, where they turned heads as some of the first to wear dashikis in the street. Their hopes of joining Malcolm X's entourage evaporated with Malcolm's assassination in February 1965. In the wake of his death, scores of black nationalist groups sprang up. Odinga and Shakur joined the Panthers, proudly donning the black berets and standing guard outside the group's New York headquarters on 7th Avenue in Harlem. From the beginning, the Panther leadership in California was ill at ease with its New York recruits. Many of the New Yorkers, steeped in Malcolm's teachings, had risen from gangs and served in prison. They were far more streetwise, confrontational, and Afrocentric than the Californians. We had studied black history and African history, Odinga recalls. They were more into the politics of communities in California. We were more African. They were more American. One of the first open disagreements between the two groups, in fact, came when headquarters attempted to ban the wearing of dashikis and the taking of African names. When the New Yorkers objected, a Panther delegation headed by Eldridge Cleaver was sent east to enforce the order. Lumumba and I met with them, Odinga recalls. It got ugly for a minute or two. They said, we are the party. If you are part of the party, you will follow orders. We said, we will follow your leadership, but not blindly. Arguments stretched on for weeks. Most of the rank and file was on our side. Finally, we compromised. We agreed to wear black leather to BPP functions. The rest of the time, dashikis. Oakland's wariness was reflected in the leadership it chose in New York, a group of SNCC veterans based in Brooklyn. Shakur was made section leader in Harlem, Odinga in the Bronx. Odinga was also named Minister of Education and took responsibility for the political education classes all New Panthers were obliged to attend. Both took part in the full array of Panther activities, the free breakfasts, the lectures, appearances at myriad demonstrations. But from the beginning, Odinga and Shakur had a second, secret agenda, the same one later pursued by the Black Liberation Army. They wanted to kill cops. And they tried. Along with 20 other Panthers, they concocted an ambitious plan to attack a series of policemen in precincts. Bombs were built, sniper positions set. But two of the Panthers turned out to be police detectives, and before the plan could be set into motion, 
the NYPD swooped in and arrested almost everyone, including Shakur. Of those involved in the Panther plot, only one avoided arrest, Seku Odinga. He was hiding in an upper-floor apartment near Brooklyn's Prospect Park when a squad of officers crept up the stairs to arrest him. Asleep at the time, Odinga woke when he heard a noise. Pressing his ear to the door, he sensed what was happening. He heard footsteps on the roof. He was surrounded. He stepped into the bathroom, glanced around, and saw what he would have to do. Struggling into his clothes, he grabbed a carbine by his bedside and yelled, Who's there? The police! Open the door! Give me a minute. I'm putting my clothes on. Once he had the speaker's attention, Odinga stepped to the front door and loudly clicked around into the gun's chamber. He's got a gun, came the shout. He's got a gun! As the police scattered for cover, Odinga raced into the bathroom, where a tiny window, no more than 12 inches wide, opened. Outside was a four-story drop to an alley below. Leaving his rifle behind, he squeezed through the window and slid one hand onto a concrete drain pipe that ran down the building. Leaving the safety of the window, he clasped the drain pipe with both hands and both feet and began shimmying down. He managed to descend about ten feet when a voice cried out from below, There he is! There he is! Odinga sprang from the wall and jumped, landing nearly thirty feet below on the roof of a one-story garage. As he landed, his knee struck his chin and nearly knocked him unconscious. He stood, woozy, and heard the cries of policemen all around. Stepping to the edge of the roof, he leaped into a tree, only to have the branches break, dropping him to the pavement below. He limped to a nearby brownstone, tried its door, found it locked, then tried another, and another, and another, until he found an unlocked basement door. Inside, he curled himself into a ball and hid behind an oil tank. Police cordoned off the block and began a house-to-house search. For hours, Odinga listened as they tromped about. His luck held. No one came into the basement. When darkness fell, he uncoiled his aching body, stepped from the basement, hailed a gypsy cab, and vanished. The legal odyssey of Lumumba Shakur and the rest of the Panther 21 falls outside the narrative of this book. All told, their mass trial lasted more than eight months, from September 1970 to May 1971. At the time, it was the longest and most expensive trial in New York history. The 21 became a cause celeb for the city's white radicals, as well as many wealthy liberals. The legendary Park Avenue party thrown by the composer Leonard Bernstein, which inspired writer Tom Wolfe to coin the term radical chic, was a fundraiser for the 21. The most prominent panther in attendance, and the centerpiece of Wolfe's article, was Field Marshal Donald Cox, who, while little remembered today, would go on to become a guiding force behind the BLA. Celebrities adored the New York Panthers. When Shakur's slender, intellectual brother Zaid was arrested, his bail was posted by none other than Jane Fonda. Zaid Shakur, so slight his peers jokingly called him the field mouse rather than field marshal, would go on to become an influential member of the BLA. 
The BLA was ultimately a byproduct of tensions between the smooth, cliquish Panthers of the West Coast and the angry, Afrocentric, dashiki-wearing Panthers of New York, tensions that arose during the Panther 21 trial. Throughout the proceedings, the New York Panthers clamored for money, for lawyers, bail, and expenses that Oakland was unable to supply. Relations worsened when headquarters insisted on dispatching a stream of California Panthers to New York to fill the leadership vacuum left by the 21's incarceration. The California Panthers, especially a field marshal named Thomas Jolly, smirked at the Dashikis, openly courted female Panthers, and seemed to freely spend what remained of the chapter's cash. Panthers on the street, we felt put upon, abused, distrusted, recalls Thomas Blood McCreary, then a Brooklyn Panther. You don't trust our new leaders? They treated us like a bunch of idiots, fucking our women and stealing our money. These motherfuckers, they were running amok. Tensions rose further still when Huey Newton, his murder conviction reversed on appeal, emerged from prison and reassumed leadership of the Panthers in August 1970. The party Newton now oversaw, however, was nothing like the one he had known. It had grown from a handful of chapters to more than 50, with thousands of new members Newton had never met. He had few skills to lead such an organization, much less one hounded on every front by the FBI and riven with dissent. Even as Newton began making his first tentative speeches as a free man, rumors flew that he was in fact a shell of his former self, holed up in an Oakland penthouse snorting mounds of cocaine. Maybe the most contentious issue Newton faced was the question of armed struggle, the question of whether the Panthers really should, as their rhetoric promised, go to war against American police. A few Panthers, notably Eldridge Cleaver, had always called for armed revolution, and right away. Some rank-and-file Panthers, especially in New York, agreed. Once Cleaver disappeared, however, few in the national leadership were prepared actually to build and arm the guerrilla force he envisioned, even on a standby basis. The one leader who argued for doing so was a 23-year-old Panther named Elmer Geronimo Pratt. A Green Beret in Vietnam, Pratt had been the Southern California chapter's Minister of Defense. When Newton went to prison, Pratt took it upon himself to organize underground cadres within several Panther chapters. The leadership grudgingly consented. Once a chastened Newton emerged from prison, however, he wanted little to do with talk of revolution, which he dismissed as a fantasy. This kind of talk prompted grumbling from, of all places, the North African country of Algeria, where Cleaver, after months of trying to find a safe haven, had remade himself as head of the new Panthers' international section. The story of Cleaver's time in Algiers is a key untold chapter of the Black Liberation Army story. After fleeing a court date in November 1968, Cleaver had gone to Cuba, where he'd hoped to set up camps to train revolutionaries he believed would start a guerrilla war in the United States. In fact, Fidel Castro refused to allow him to even give interviews, much less set up camps. Incensed, Cleaver demanded to leave. 
Castro resisted, that is, until a reporter spotted Cleaver and broke the news that he was in Cuba. In June 1969, after Cleaver had cooled his heels in Havana for six months, a Cuban diplomat walked him onto an Aeroflot flight and escorted him to Algiers, where he was reunited with his wife, Kathleen. Algiers in the summer of 1969 was perhaps the perfect place and the perfect moment for Eldridge Cleaver. Since winning its bloody war for independence from France in 1962, the government had forged close relations with the Soviet Union and allowed scores of revolutionary groups from Angola to Palestine to maintain offices in its diplomatic community. A London paper termed Algiers in 1969 the headquarters of world revolution. Cleaver, figuring he could demand an embassy too, invited any number of other Panther fugitives to join him. A half dozen followed suit, including a trio of California skyjackers, Donald Cox of radical chic fame, a Panther field marshal fleeing a murder indictment in Baltimore who arrived in 1970, and Sekou Odinga, who with two other Panthers reached Algiers via Havana three months later. Cox became Cleaver's aide-de-camp, Odinga his unofficial number three man. It took a full year of on-and-off negotiations, however, for the Algerian government to approve official recognition of the international section of the Black Panther Party. While waiting, Cleaver embarked on a series of trips leading Panther delegations to the Soviet Union, China, North Vietnam, and his personal favorite, North Korea, where he had spent two months. In Algiers, Cleaver rented a spacious apartment in the Point Pescade section, where he gave frequent interviews. Finally, in June 1970, Cleaver received the Algerian government's formal recognition, which came with a monthly stipend, identification cards, the right to obtain visas, and best of all, the Panthers' own embassy, a white two-story villa in the suburb of LBR, previously used by the North Vietnamese. Cleaver held a press conference to announce it all, telling reporters the Nixon clique had begun to group the black people in concentration camps, escalating repression to the level of overt fascist terror against those who dare to resist the oppression of the diabolical system under which the blacks of the United States are suffering. We reject the temple of slavery, which is the United States of America, and we intend to transform it into a social system of liberty and peace. Huey Newton emerged from prison just as Cleaver established himself in his new Panther embassy. Their rivalry was intense and very personal. It was stoked by the FBI's notorious COINTELPRO program. Agents forged dozens of letters between various Panthers passing on spurious allegations that Newton was plotting to kill Cleaver and vice versa. The two clashed almost immediately over Cleaver's call to raise a guerrilla army to fight the U.S. government. All this, as it happened, coincided with a trip Geronimo Pratt was making through southern chapters in his ongoing attempts to organize just such a clandestine force. After Pratt was arrested in Dallas that December, Newton expelled him from the party. When several militant New York Panthers protested, Newton announced he was expelling them too. From Algiers, 
Cleaver called loudly for Geronimo Pratt and the New York Panthers to be reinstated. Newton refused. By late January 1971, rumors of an impending split in the party were approaching a fever pitch, especially in New York, where stories sprouted daily that Newtonite assassins were arriving at any moment to wipe out the East Coast leadership. Newton realized it was the time for a public display of unity. But with Cleaver marooned in Algeria, the best he could do was a transatlantic phone call between the two, which was to air live on on Jim Dunbar's AM San Francisco television talk show on February 26th. Cleaver reluctantly agreed, but he suspected he was walking into a trap. All manner of wild rumors were flying from Algiers to Oakland, that Cleaver had ordered several Panthers murdered, that he was preparing a violent overthrow of the party, that he was secretly dealing drugs and guns, that he was insane. Even their doctrinal differences could be embarrassing if they were aired on live television. Both men went ahead. It was a disaster. As Newton sat in a Bay Area television studio, Cleaver opened the conversation by insisting that the New York Panthers be reinstated. Newton again refused, saying those purged had plunged into counterproductive avenues of violence and adventurism. Cleaver was just getting started. Terming the Central Committee inept, he demanded their resignation. When Newton again refused, the two men simply talked past each other. The high point came when Cleaver denounced Newton personally, called for immediate guerrilla warfare against the U.S. government, and said that he would now direct the real Black Panther Party, from Algiers. Afterward, Newton expelled Cleaver. Cleaver then expelled Newton. For days, confusion reigned. Chapter leaders across the country telephoned Oakland for guidance and held meetings among themselves. Nothing as formal as a nationwide vote ensued, but but had there been, the results would have been clear within a week. The vast majority of Panther chapters remained loyal to Oakland, to Newton. Party histories inevitably call this period the split. In fact, it was less a split than a single city secession. Only New York, many of its members anyway, wanted to side with Cleaver. One account tells of a tense meeting in Harlem between several East Coast leaders, including some from as far afield as Rhode Island and Baltimore. Only the Harlem, Brooklyn, Queens, and Bronx branches pledged allegiance to Cleaver. Afterward, New York's intellectual leader, Zaid Shakur, who remained in regular contact with Cleaver in Algeria, told other members they would establish the new East Coast Black Panther Party by taking over the Old Panthers headquarters, the Harlem storefront on 7th Avenue. A new newspaper, Right On, would be published to spread the word. Amid the chaos of those early March days, the only constant was the rumor of imminent warfare between the East and West Coast Panthers. Zaid Shakur repeatedly told reporters that Newton had dispatched as many as 75 robots to wipe out the New York leadership. Overnight, the Panther offices in Harlem and the Bronx were transformed into fortresses. Guns were stockpiled. Windows were boarded. At any, mu- at any minute, Shakur warned, Newton's assassins would strike. Then, on the afternoon of Monday, March 8th, came the spark. Robert Webb, 
was a charismatic 22-year-old Panther Field Marshal from the Bay Area who had come to Harlem the previous spring with two other Panthers in an effort to reassert Oakland's control. Webb, however, warmed to the New Yorkers. When his companions were unceremoniously sent back to California, he stayed behind, emerging as a popular leader known as Coffee Man. Coffee Man saw how we worked, and he hooked up with us, a one-time Panther named Cyril Innes recalls. He became one of us, and that made the powers that be very, very nervous. That Monday afternoon, in front of a chock-full-of-nuts restaurant at the corner of 125th Street and 7th Avenue, Webb confronted a rival Panther selling newspapers. Exactly what happened has never been explained, but Webb, who was carrying his customary 357 Magnum, ended up dead on the sidewalk, a single bullet hole in the back of his head. The Harlem Panthers would later claim he had been killed by a Newtonite assassin, but no arrest was ever made. In an FBI memo written to J. Edgar Hoover a month later, an agent in New York credited COINTELPRO activities with causing Webb's murder. Webb's death electrified the New York Panthers who were convinced that the long-awaited war had begun. Right then, that's when the BLA started, Cyril Innes recalls. Certain people were told to go underground. Who made the decisions? I wish I knew. To this day, I don't really know. The full story of the Black Liberation Army's origins will probably never be told. Too many people have died, then and since, too many who lived still worry about being prosecuted for the killings that began that chaotic spring. One man who will talk, however, was perhaps the BLA's most important organizer. His name in 1971 was Richard Doruba Moore. Forty years later, after a legal odyssey as strange as any in U.S. history, he is known as Doruba bin Wahad. Doruba Moore, as he will be called, was 26 that spring. He was an unlikely underground commander, a rangy, motor-mouthed peacock and curbside intellectual whose rambling soliloquies on every conceivable topic tended to draw snickers from panthers and reporters alike. Like Seiku Odinga and other panthers, he was a one-time gang member who had been radicalized in prison. A talented recruiter, Daruba had been arrested and become one of the more notorious of the Panther 21, thanks to his penchant for outrageous courtroom outbursts. That March, as tensions escalated between West and East Coast Panthers, Daruba and another 21 defendant, Michael Chetaweo Tabor, made bail and were released from custody. When the party split and open warfare appeared imminent, both men decided to join Cleaver in Algiers. With two others, they jumped bail and made their way to Montreal, where flights had been arranged. At the last moment, however, Daruba was informed that his papers weren't ready. He couldn't go. When Tabor boarded a plane to Algiers, Daruba was left behind. At that point, he had to make a choice. If he returned to New York, where he imagined Newton's assassins were combing the streets in search of him, he was going back to fight fight the West Coast Panthers and the New York police and anyone else who threatened them. What else would we do? Join the Salvation Army, Daruba recalls. 
This was war. War meant one thing. Mobilizing the underground. The nascent Black Liberation Army. It was our plan when we came back to build an underground. To use the infrastructure we had in place. They would attack the police who had killed our people. The Ruber recalls. We would strike back. And that's what we did. Or what we tried to do. Returning to New York... Deruba began gathering his people, many of whom had been put on alert that winter. By and large, those first BLA recruits were men and a few women with arms or medical training whom Deruba felt he could trust. They came mostly from three neighborhoods, including the Brownsville section of Brooklyn, where Deruba had worked as a Panther recruiter, and South Jamaica, the home of many of the heaviest Panthers, including the Shakur brothers and Sekou Odinga. A third source of recruits was the Washington Heights chapter of the National Committee to Combat Fascism, a Panther-affiliated group. Many would-be Panthers had joined when the party's ranks were closed to new members in 1969. Jamaica, Brownsville, and Washington Heights. That's where almost all the initial BLA cadres came from, Deruba recalls. Andrew Jackson, Frank Fields, Asada Shakur, they all came from the Washington Heights chapter. I'd had Washington Heights on the down-low for months. They were half expecting this. The cell that coalesced around Deruba Moore was only one of several that formed that spring in the chaos after Robert Webb's death. An estimated 50 to 80 Panthers were in some stage of going underground, but it was the first to act. Several safe-house apartments were already in place, an archipelago of dingy flats scattered through Harlem and the Bronx, What amounted to the group's headquarters was a shambling three-story townhouse at 757 Beck Street in the Bronx, where Daruba stored the group's weapons, including several hand grenades and a machine gun. Bunking off and on there were a dozen or so Panthers, all in their 20s, several of whom were destined for prominence within the BLA. These included Frank Heavy Fields, a chunky New York University dropout, Andrew Jackson, a suave, smooth-skinned Queens Panther, and 16-year-old Mark Holder, who had been at Robert Webb's side when he was murdered. The townhouse doubled as their hospital. Friends at a radical-run clinic in the Bronx had stolen a closet full of medical supplies for them. The group's medical expert, she knew first aid at least, was Joanne Chesimard, later known as Asada Shakur, a smart, attractive city college student who would eventually become the BLA's most infamous member. The Beck Street cell's first priority was money for food and rent. To get it, Daruba says, they began robbing heroin dealers, which brought the additional benefit of fighting the drug trade, a longtime Panther priority. I knew all these major drug dudes, Nicky Barnes, Tito Johnson, Albie Simmons, from the Bronx and from prison, Deruba recalls. It was the natural place to get money. So when we first went underground, we started taking down heroin dealers. We were really rolling these motherfuckers, and they gave us information. When we rolled Tito, he says, There's a lot of pressure. We can't work. The cops are all over us wanting information on you. That's how we found out the police were trying to use the dealers against us. We bashed down a lot of doors, man. We were like black cops. 
After several weeks, when neither the police nor a Panther assassination squad had found them, the talk at 757 Beck turned to revenge for Robert Webb's murder. Their target was obvious. The East Coast office of the Newton-controlled Black Panther newspaper on Northern Boulevard in Queens. The office was run by a popular 32-year-old Panther named Sam Napier. They watched it for days. As police later pieced together events, seven members of the Beck Street Underground, led more or less by Daruba, piled into a U-Haul truck and drove to Queens on the afternoon of April 17th. Shooing away a number of women and children in the office, the group bound Napier with a Venetian blind cord, tortured him, shot him four times, then set his body on fire. To those white radicals who had rallied to the Panther 21's defense, the sudden outbreak of violence was deeply unsettling. One of those caught in the political cross-currents was a 23-year-old volunteer on the 21's defense committee named Silvia Beraldini. She was an expatriate Italian businessman's daughter who had grown up in Washington, D.C. and radicalized at the University of Wisconsin. In the next dozen years, Beraldini would go on to one of the more colorful careers of any underground figure. Suddenly, you know, all these Panthers we knew were killing each other, she remembers. None of us, the whites I mean, had any clue what was really going on. One might expect Napier's gruesome murder to have intensified West Coast-East Coast violence. Instead, it ended it. The BLA never again targeted a panther for death. Instead, barely a month later, its members would ambush four police officers, killing two. Contemporary accounts portrayed the May shootings of officers Curry and Benetti and the murders of officers Jones and Piagentini as attacks that erupted out of nowhere, with no warning. In fact, the BLA's abrupt change in focus arose from a little-noticed incident in Harlem a full month earlier, on April 19th, just two days after Sam Napier's death. That afternoon, two patrolmen, Arthur Plate and Howard Stewart, were cruising on West 121st Street when a pedestrian flagged them down and, motioning toward a trio of black men, said that he had overheard them discussing plans for a robbery. The officers emerged from the car, approached the three men, and ordered them into the foyer at 215 West 121st to be searched. Two complied. The third drew a pistol and opened fire. A wild gunfight ensued inside the vestibule. Officer Plate was struck in the face and fell to the floor, critically wounded. Officer Stewart, struck in the thigh, ducked, drew his gun, and fired all six shots in his service revolver. His bullets killed one of the men, 20-year-old Harold Russell, and injured a 23-year-old named Anthony Kimu White. A third man, wounded in the shoulder, charged out the door and made his escape. Police identified him as Robert Vickers. All three men, it turned out, were Cleaverite Panthers. The two survivors, in fact, would become active members of the BLA. For the police, it was just another nasty shooting. The NYPD had no idea the men were Panthers and no clue that anything called the Black Liberation Army yet existed. For Daruba Moore's new BLA, however, the gunfight was a call to arms. 
the wounded Robert Vickers made his way to 757 Beck Street, where Joanne Chesimard nursed him back to health. He comes back to Beck Street, DeRuber recalls, and we decide that, of course, retaliation is appropriate. And it could be on Malcolm X's birthday. So we decided to announce the debut of the BLA, the first black underground, on Malcolm's birthday, May 19th. The full story of those first two BLA attacks on May 19th and 21st, 1971, probably will never be told. After three trials and years of litigation, Daruba, whose fingerprints were found on one of the communiques, would be convicted of his involvement. Forty years later, he will not discuss what happened. But all available evidence indicates that the two shootings were actually carried out by two unrelated groups of Panthers who knew nothing about each other's plans. The May 19th shootings of Officers Benetti and Curry were the work of Panthers from 757 Beck Street, including Frank Fields, who was killed later that year. The May 21st murders of Officers Jones and Piagentini, as will be seen, were carried out by a group of -of out-of-state Panthers who happened to be visiting New York and, it appears, were inspired by the May 19th attacks. Daruba Moore, one surmises, wrote the communiques for both incidents, even though he had no idea who was behind the second incident. Presumably this was done to make the attacks appear related and the BLA more dangerous. All Daruba will say today is that he regrets targeting patrolmen. The tactical mistake we made was killing the cops in uniform, he says, when we should have killed the higher-ups. That would have been more effective. In spearheading the BLA's formation, Deruba expected it would take guidance, if not direct orders, from Eldridge Cleaver and his military advisor, Donald Cox, in far-off Algiers. In the wake of the split, Cleaver certainly appeared ready to launch his long-predicted guerrilla war in the United States. He seemingly had command of every gun and gadget a modern guerrilla leader might need, all of it tucked away in his beloved Panther embassy. He seldom left the grounds, spending much of his time smoking hashish and talking on the telephone. But even as his personal world shrank, Cleaver's introduction to the other Third World revolutionaries broadened his worldview. In his mind, he was now not only the leader of Black Revolutionary America, but a leader of the global revolutionary movement. What money he raised, much of it from a Panther support group in Paris, went into a Marxist library. He kept an account at a London bookseller. And newfangled electronic equipment, including cameras and machines to make how-to and revolutionary videotapes he intended to distribute around the world. His pride and joy was a giant map of the world that filled one entire wall of his communications room. When a British reporter visited, Cleaver demonstrated how the map worked. Cleaver begins flicking switches on a console, and slowly, all over the world, lights come up. There's one color for the Panther headquarters in America, another color for liberation groups engaged in armed struggle in Africa, Brazil, Vietnam, There's another color for solidarity groups. We have a solidarity group in China, Cleaver says with a laugh. Its chairman is Chairman Mao. Finally, one last light goes on, much bigger than all the rest, and bright red. It is in Algiers. That is the witch doctor, Cleaver says with a grin. 
He gesticulates in the direction of the map. We will make videotapes of the struggles going on all over the world. But we don't call it videotape. We call it voodoo. Because it has, like, magical properties. You know how electricity moves? It's kind of mysterious. It's invisible. With the Panther split in February 1971, Cleaver's dreams seemed to be coming true. After years of calling for guerrilla warfare in the United States, militant Panthers began flocking to New York to take arms. Policemen were murdered. Communiques were issued. Given his role as a beacon of revolutionary violence, one might have expected Cleaver to anoint himself chairman of the BLA. He didn't. In fact, Cleaver ordained that the BLA would have no leader. Not him, not anyone. Under guidelines set by Cleaver and Don Cox, the BLA's structure would be the exact opposite of the Weather Underground's. Where weather cadres did nothing without direction from leadership, Cleaver and Cox wanted BLA units to operate independently, with no central coordination whatsoever. A system of autonomous cells, Cox reasoned, would be much harder for the government to subdue. A single leader could be defeated with a single arrest. This sounded fine in theory. In practice, it led to anarchy. I never understood the concept of an organization without leadership, recalls Brooklyn BLA member Blood McCreary. I always thought that was going to be difficult, and it was. When we got into the field, we were supposed to be autonomous, and you'd be two or three cells trying to do their own thing. I remember once two cells showed up to rob the same bank. It happened outside the Bronx Zoo at a manufacturer's Hanover. So not having leadership? That was a problem. A decentralized structure, however, had the added virtue of distancing Cleaver from BLA violence. The Algerian government, while happy to host revolutionary groups, made clear to all of them that it would not condone acts of violence initiated on its own soil. Worse, from Cleaver's point of view, were hints that the government might be warming to a U.S. government more than a little interested in Algerian energy reserves. In practice, this meant that while Cleaver spent night and day proselytizing bloody revolution, he seldom, if ever, mentioned the Black Liberation Army by name, much less publicly condoned its acts. His position in Algiers was too insecure. Rather than speak over an international phone line he suspected, correctly, that the FBI had tapped, Cleaver laid out his initial plans for the BLA in a set of voodoo tapes, which his favorite courier, a striking young Puerto Rican radical named Denise Oliver, brought to New York. Cleaver's subsequent relationship with the BLA was as complex as the man himself. He was a writer at heart and sensed he was best suited to be an inspirational rather than an operational leader. He was not a military man. He only thought he was, Sekou Odinga recalls. It was D.C., Donald Cox, who had the military mind. He was a brilliant strategist. It may have looked like Cleaver was leading the BLA, but he wasn't. He just talked the talk. But the decisions, the decisions were made by DC and me and Chet Whale, Michael Tabor. Cleaver didn't even know most of these guys, but they were our comrades. Communication between BLA leaders in New York and the Algerian Panthers 
was problematic at best. Zaid Shakur and, after his release from jail, his brother, Lumumba, spoke to Algiers on a regular basis, but the calls were expensive, and when money ran low, volunteers at the 7th Avenue headquarters resorted to using stolen credit cards. When they managed to get through, surviving transcripts of FBI wiretaps indicate Cleaver rarely came to the telephone. The calls were usually taken instead by Donald Cox or Odinga, who, keenly aware of FBI wiretaps, were obliged to speak in circumscribed terms. Not only was Cleaver not leading the BLA, remember, he didn't even know most of them. He wasn't even from New York, Odinga remembers. Zaid, Denise, they called and talked to me. Lumumba made sure I got all the info. I talked to them every day. I was in contact with dozens of people underground. Believe me, everything that was going on, I knew about. The problem, Odinga says, was that knowledge of events did not translate into influence. Cleaver, for instance, wanted to call their new underground the Afro-American Liberation Army. Daruba Moore says the New York Panthers simply ignored this. Outside of an advisory role, we had no role, Odinga goes on. I made suggestions, sure, but they were not listening to what I said. They made their own decisions. I was not leading anything. As far as I know, no one person was leading anything. I kept telling them, go slow, organize, get yourselves together. But once Robert Webb got killed, things got out of control. Lumumba and Zaid, they're trying to control things, but they can't. I said, slow down, I'm going to come help. And they said, nah, it's too late for that. Things just got too crazy. To follow Algeria, that was the initial plan, Doruba recalls. When the split went down, we were following the instructions from Eldridge in D.C. and Algiers. Denise Oliver brought back these audio tapes from them, with guidelines, so we could read them out to people. Our people, but also Geronimo Pratt's people that he had organized in California in the South. But then everything changed. The reality on the ground was, people were scrambling and running for their lives. After the police shootings on May 19th, it became a real war between the police and us. It got harder to talk to Algeria. What most interested Cleaver, and the subject he returned to again and again in his transatlantic phone calls, was the need to establish an above-ground network to support the BLA. Guerrilla units could not survive long, he knew, without donations, without volunteers to serve as couriers and press agents, without community support. A panther named Bernice Jones was keeping the old 7th Avenue headquarters open in Harlem, but as police pressure skyrocketed after the May attacks, many volunteers simply melted away. Those who remained came under relentless surveillance and harassment from the FBI and NYPD. By the summer, there would be fewer than a dozen people working with Jones. Everyone is just too scared, Lumumba Shakur complained in one call to Algeria. They all running and hiding in fear. While subordinates fielded harried calls from Harlem, Cleaver resorted to doing what he did best, writing. He started a newspaper to compete with the official Panther organ, the Black Panther. Cleaver's paper, Right On, was aimed squarely at the recruitment and education of black urban guerrillas. Its language was even more violent than that found in the Black Panther. Its first issue, which hit the streets two weeks after Webb's death, explained the split, 
called for New York Panthers to rally behind Cleaver and featured a back-page cartoon showing a black man with a pistol aimed at a policeman. In the spirit of Robert Webb, the caption read, we have no hang-ups about revolutionary violence. A second issue, The New Urban Guerrilla, published May 17th, just hours before the first police shootings, went even further. In an article detailing the death of one panther, the author wrote, His spirit will live in all revolutionaries who pick up the gun to off their oppressors. There was a photo of Richard Nixon with a noose around his neck, and a cartoon drawing of a child holding a pistol to a policeman's head. The 9mm and how to use it, the caption read. The assassination of two New York police officers and the critical wounding of two more was so jarring that its reverberations were felt all the way to the White House, where on May 26th, five days after the shootings, President Nixon summoned J. Edgar Hoover and Attorney General John Mitchell to the Oval Office. Was this the beginning, Nixon wondered, of the violent black uprising they'd always feared, or just street thugs run amok? Hoover hadn't a clue, but Nixon told him to use every means necessary to stamp out this Black Liberation Army, or whatever it was. Hoover ordered every available New York agent onto the case, which he codenamed New Kill. At the FBI's 69th Street offices, a new squad, numbered 43A, was formed. From the beginning, however, this was the NYPD's case which presented Mayor John Lindsay with a set of delicate problems. Presidential primaries began in a scant ten months, and many believed Lindsay wanted to run again, as he eventually did. Lindsay's image as a candidate, however, was built on a reputation for having kept New York's bubbling racial stew from boiling over. Talk of a black conspiracy to kill policemen struck directly at his prospects, not that it mattered to police union officials. We're in a war, Edward J. Kiernan, the head of the union, growled to a group of reporters. It's open season on cops in this city. I refuse to stand by and permit my men to be gunned down while the Lindsay administration does nothing to protect them. Accordingly, I'm instructing them to secure their own shotguns and carry them on patrol at all times. You think that'll make a difference? A reporter asked. I don't know, Kiernan said, but we'll do whatever is necessary. If we have to patrol this city in tanks, that's what we'll do. This is war. Black leaders, fearing police reprisals, denounced these and similar emotional calls for shotgun justice, in the words of Manhattan Borough President Percy Sutton. City Hall did everything possible to tamp down racial tensions. Asked if there really was a black liberation army targeting cops, police commissioner Patrick Murphy told reporters there was no proof. When Murphy subsequently announced that police cruisers in high-crime areas would be followed by unmarked backup cars, he denied that it was to protect the police. Rather, he said it would counteract possible overreacting by the police. As the police dragnet spread, Daruba Moore and his comrades began efforts to raise money, robbing a series of heroin dealers and social clubs. In the pre-dawn hours of June 5th, He and three men barged into an after-hours club in the Bronx called the Triple O. Waving a forty-five caliber submachine gun, Daruba ordered the two dozen patrons to strip. 
When one man was a bit slow, Daruba fired a burst of bullets into a wall over the man's head. Once everyone's clothes were piled on the floor, Daruba's companions began searching them for cash and jewelry. The gunfire was loud enough that officers and a passing police cruiser heard it. Sensing a robbery in progress, they radioed for backup. Within minutes, police from five patrol cars were outside, guns drawn. They called for everyone to come out. No one came. After several minutes ticked by, one officer opened the door and crept up the staircase to the second floor club. He found 30 or so people still putting on their clothes. What's going on here? he demanded. Beats me, one man replied. We just minded our own business. We heard shooting. Some dudes tried to rip us off, another said, but they gone now. Then the men who had drawn Daruba's fire piped up. No way! That's him, he said, pointing out Daruba, who was attempting to blend in with the patrons. And him, and him, and him. Daruba and his men were led away in handcuffs, a matter of hours as it happened, after the FBI had identified his fingerprints on the BLA communiques. The newspapers all trumpeted the arrests, suggesting that the men behind the May attacks had all been caught, or soon would be. Fears of police reprisals and race riots began to ebb. Investigations of the Beck Street Panthers, who quickly scattered, would drag on for months, but as far as police were concerned, the mystery of the May attacks was more or less solved. All that remained was to track down the remaining suspects. This Black Liberation Army, the thinking went, was just another silly name dreamed up by the radical element to lend credence to its crimes. Few in law enforcement, or anywhere else for that matter, appear to have given serious thought to the idea that the BLA was very real and just getting started. The Rise of the BLA The Black Liberation Army June 1971 to February 1972. Faceless brothers of the night who swim through the city like fish in the sea, never resting in your search and destroy mission against the system. I know how lonely you are and my heart reaches out to you. As repression grows, it becomes more difficult for us to continue our struggle here, but we persist until the final day and we shall join you in the sea of blood that will flow in the streets of Babylon. A poem appearing in Eldridge Cleaver's Ride On Black Community News Service, Fall 1971. <clears throat> there were three versions of the story of the Black Liberation Army playing out in New York as that hot summer of 1971 wore on what the public knew, what the police suspected, and what was actually happening. To the public, the attacks in May had swiftly become old news after the arrests of Daruba Moore and his three comrades. The NYPD, it was assumed, would make more arrests as they usually did. As for the BLA itself, few believed it was anything more than a name typed on a letter. The police, however, were starting to suspect that something was afoot. All through June and July, detectives chased reports of one-time Panthers robbing drug dealers and social clubs across Queens, the Bronx, and Brooklyn. 
Something was going on. What was happening, it is now clear, was that after the chaos that spring, the BLA was beginning to consolidate. By July, the Panthers who had gone underground, perhaps 50 or 60 total, had coalesced into two main cells, one based in Bronx, one in Brooklyn, each divided into subcells, and each, as Eldridge Cleaver had ordained, operating independently. All were beginning to realize that it was far easier to talk about guerrilla warfare than to engage in it. We had no idea, no idea what we were up against, remembers Blood McCreary, who was busy robbing drug dealers in Brooklyn. We had really hoped that established revolutionary organizations, that they could point to us and say that unless certain things are dealt with in society, this is what you're going to be dealing with. But we were so young, we didn't know what we were doing. The cops, the government, man, they were killing us. Everywhere we looked, there were cops. The BLA's most pressing problem, however, was a lack of above-ground support something Cleaver and Sekou Odinga and far-off Algiers constantly harped on. Other than Right On, whose next issue wouldn't appear until August, there was none. Barely a dozen people now manned the Panthers' 7th Avenue storefront as their every move was tracked by the NYPD and the FBI. Both searched for links to the underground, but other than the intermittent calls to Algeria, all monitored by the FBI, there were none to be found. The calls, in fact, only revealed the tensions among those few volunteers still supporting Cleaver. At one point, Lamumba Shakur and the write-on editor, Denise Oliver, got into a bitter argument. I hit her in the titty, Shakur crowed to Odinga in Algiers. Cleaver was forced to intervene. With no donations, the BLA cadres turned to armed robbery. Their targets, as Deruba Moore's experience demonstrated, were black social clubs and drug dealers. Almost all these robberies are lost to history. There were actions all over the five boroughs, recalls Blood McCreary. There were people in the drug business who were setting up others for us to move on. We raised a lot of money that way. And we were letting them know that drugs would not be tolerated anymore. One of the few surviving accounts of these robberies involves a murderous, 20-year-old BLA recruit whose zeal for gunplay and wide-ranging travels would make him perhaps the single deadliest revolutionary of the decade. His name was Twyman Ford Myers, a one-time gang member with a long juvenile record of muggings and robberies. Myers had spent much of his time in the Panthers selling newspapers. His real talent, though, was violence. He used a gun more freely than almost anyone else in the BLA. Twyman is the baby of three or four kids, and they were all thugs, recalls McCreary. Twyman was political, you know, but he was really a gangster. He had done a lot of time in jail, and there was only one clear thing in his mind. He always told me, I will die before I go back to jail. On the night of August 4th, 1971, Myers and a trio of BLA members burst into Thelma's Lounge on the corner of 7th Avenue and 148th Street in Harlem. After robbing the 30 patrons of $6,000, they commandeered a gypsy cab to make their escape. 
When the cab sagged in heavy traffic three blocks south, police cars arrived. Myers leaped from the cab, whipped out a thirty caliber automatic rifle, and began firing wildly up and down the crowded street. Police hunched behind their cruisers and fired back. During the exchange, the cab driver was hit and killed. Myers threw down his gun and ran. The others surrendered and were charged with murder. For the moment, the authorities had no sense that the shooting might be tied to the fledgling BLA. Of all the deaths Twyman was involved in, the one with that cab driver bothered him the most, recalls McCreary, shot right in the head. Twyman always said that really fucked with him. He always said, that motherfucker had nothing to do with anything. I remember when he got back to the safe house that night, the cab had just exploded. The women, they picked car glass out of his hair for two or three hours. The larger of the two BLA cells, which included the remnants of the Panthers living at 757 Beck Street, was commanded by a burly 38-year-old Army veteran named John Thomas. Another one-time resident of South Jamaica, Thomas was a heavy drinker who surrounded himself with a dozen of the most violent new BLA members, including Twyman Myers. Realizing that drug rip-offs alone wouldn't raise enough money to feed and shelter his people, he resolved to begin robbing banks. They hit the first one in Queens on July 29th, but it was a slapdash job. A more rigorous second robbery at a banker's trust branch on August 23rd involved half a dozen BLA members. As four of them trained their guns on the customers, two others leaped over the teller cages, rifled several drawers, and ran with the others to a waiting getaway car with about $7,700. None of the robbers wore masks. Security cameras easily recorded their every move. Within days, both the FBI and the NYPD were searching for them. It was then that Thomas decided New York was getting too hot for his people. Daruba's arrest also worried him, as did the arrest of several BLA soldiers attempting to set up new operations in Detroit. Thomas announced they were leaving the city. If they were to form a legitimate guerrilla army, he explained, they needed intensive training, and for that Thomas decided to set up a kind of training camp in an area where no one was looking for them, in the South. At that point, the story of the BLA for the police at least, took a surprising turn, in San Francisco. On the evening of Saturday, August 28th, a police sergeant named George Kowalski was cruising the rough streets of the Mission District alone when two black men in a dark Oldsmobile stopped in front of him. One opened fire with a submachine gun. Kowalski ducked and found himself unharmed then gave chase, leading to a wild pursuit through city streets that ended when the driver of the Oldsmobile lost control of the car, sliding into a curb, and was surrounded by police. Both men emerged with hands held high. The two, Anthony Bottom and Albert Washington, turned out to be Black Panthers, and after detectives began questioning 19-year-old Bottom, he gave them quite a story. According to Bottom, he was part of a group of Panthers who had staged a series of minor Bay Area bombings stretching back at least a year. They'd later be charged with the murder of a San Francisco policeman as well. But what stunned his questioners was when Bottom volunteered that he and Washington had been among five San Francisco Panthers who had journeyed east that May 
and murdered two New York policemen, Waverly Jones and Joseph Piagentini. Bottom's information eventually led to the arrests of the others, including a live panther named Herman Bell, who had fled with several others for New Orleans, where, police learned, they had begun robbing banks. The Bell Bottom Panthers weren't officially members of the BLA, but they might as well have been. Deruba Moore had been more than willing to take responsibility for their killings in New York. In Washington, FBI officials watched all these events with mounting alarm. The BLA was fulfilling every warning about black militancy J. Edgar Hoover had made. During the past several months, the Cleaver faction of the Black Panther Party has moved on a course of increased violence, lawlessness, and terror, Hoover wrote every FBI office on September 24th. I consider their potential for violence and disruption greater today than ever before. This bureau must approach its investigation of extremist activity with renewed vigor and imagination. For once, Hoover was right. Not that it made a bit of difference. At just about the moment Anthony Bottom and Albert Washington were arrested in San Francisco, members of John Thomas's BLA cell begun, began arriving in Atlanta. There were 17 of them in all, by far the largest single BLA group ever assembled. The number two man, Andrew Jackson, a veteran of 757 Beck Street, was there, as was Joanne Chesimard and Twyman Myers. Some came in a rented rider van, piled high with guns and books, others by car, the last few by Greyhound bus. Several checked into the Bellevue Hotel on Auburn Avenue. Within days, they found their new headquarters, a large frame home they rented on Fayetteville Road in a semi-rural area of DeKalb County on the city's eastern reaches. This would be the BLA's first training camp. Atlanta was supposed to be a school, a training ground. We were sending everyone there, recalls Blood McCreary. Once you got through Atlanta, you were supposed to be ready for anything. Once they moved in, Thomas began showing everyone how to clean, strip, and fire pistols and rifles. Classes were held in map making, use of a compass, and robbery techniques. Chesimard led sessions of first aid. Every few days, they drove the van into a wooded area where Thomas had everyone shoot on jerry-rigged firing ranges. Other times, they tried to learn wilderness skills, something none of them, city dwellers as they were, knew much about. After three weeks, the money be began to ran, run low. Thomas sent everyone into Atlanta to fan out and identify a bank to rob. When the group reassembled that evening, he gave a long talk to the group on how to stage an efficient robbery. Everyone was told to take notes, and afterward Thomas reviewed all the members' notebooks to make sure his message had sunk in. He then scouted the location himself and announced they had found their target, a branch of the Fulton National Bank on Peters Street. To rehearse, they built a sandbox in which they constructed a model of the bank and its surroundings. Thomas moved around the sandbox, drawing arrows with a stick and discussing each member's role. In preparation, Myers and a young recruit named Fred Hilton were sent into downtown Atlanta to steal a car, only to return, crestfallen, without one. Unable to hotwire a car themselves, they ended up robbing a garage attendant who refused to hand over a vehicle. Irked, Thomas sent Myers and another teenager, Samuel Cooper, to try again. 
This time, they walked into a downtown garage, pointed a pistol at the attendant, and were just about to steal a car when a woman drove up. Myers shoved the attendant out of sight while Cooper politely accepted the unknowing woman's keys and handed her a ticket. They then drove off in her car. They robbed the bank on October 7th, covering the customers and quickly leaping the cages. Afterward, flush with cash, Thomas decided to establish a second safe house outside Atlanta. Joanne Chesimard led a scouting team of five members to Greenville, South Carolina. But after a week of searching for a suitable retreat, they received word from Thomas to begin looking in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chesimard's group arrived there on October 14th, checking into three rooms at the Rosetta Motel on 37th Street. They later moved into a set of apartments. In the following days, Thomas sent several members shuttling back and forth between the two cities, redistributing the group's guns, ammunition, and belongings. He then announced that it was time to begin their long-planned war. To all of them, that meant one thing, killing policemen. Thomas selected the two youngest members, Twyman Myers and Freddie Hilton, for the honor of the first kill. The two teens had borne the brunt of his anger more than once, for mishandling stolen cars and for crashing the rider van into a tree and having to abandon it. Now, Thomas announced, they must prove they were worthy of the BLA. They would go into the streets of Atlanta alone and kill. A few minutes after midnight on the morning of November 3, 1971, a 27-year-old Atlanta police officer named James Green walked out of Grandma's Biscuits with a late-night snack, a cup of coffee, and a ham biscuit. He climbed into his patrol wagon and drove to a darkened service station on Memorial Drive across from a cemetery. He had just finished the sandwich when Twyman Myers and Freddie Hilton materialized from the shadows on both sides of the wagon, raised their thirty-eight caliber pistols, and opened fire with no warning. Green never had a chance. Struck by three bullets, he would be dead by morning. Myers and Hilton opened the car door, tore off Green's badge with such force that they ripped his shirt and took his pistol. When they returned to the house on Fayetteville Road, one BLA member would recall months later, they were triumphant, brandishing the police revolver and the badge, announcing, We did it! We did it! John Thomas was pleased. He dispatched the two to the Chattanooga apartments to hide out. At the same time, he summoned two other members, Cooper and Ronald Anderson, to return from Tennessee. When they arrived, Thomas led them into a bedroom where Jackson was waiting. You know what happened? Thomas asked. They knew. Your two brothers did it, he continued. Motioning toward Jackson, he said, You all have the next one. The next morning, Cooper woke to find Jackson caressing Officer Green's stolen revolver. The pigs got nice guns, he, re he remarked. On November 7th, four days after the murder of Officer Green, Andrew Jackson led his two young charges into Atlanta to kill a second policeman. Instead, after, passing, after a passing patrolman noticed their guns, they ended up getting arrested outside a convenience store. When the news reached John Thomas, he ordered an immediate evacuation. The group piled everything into two cars and drove to the apartments in Chattanooga, where they pored over the newspapers for any sign of what was happening back in Atlanta. 
After four days, once it became clear that Jackson and the others would not be released anytime soon, Thomas announced that everyone was returning to New York. On the morning of November 11th, the remaining nine members of the cell drove east out of Chattanooga in two cars, crossing the Smoky Mountains into North Carolina. Everything went smoothly until one of the cars was stopped by a sheriff's deputy named Ted Elmore in Catawba County, North Carolina. A gunfight broke out. Elmore was shot and left paralyzed. Four of the group's members were arrested. The others rendezvoused in Norfolk, Virginia, and decided they couldn't afford to return to New York, where too many people knew them. Instead, Thomas led four of them to Florida, where they were later accused of robbing a bank in Miami and robbing a gun store in Tampa. On December 30th, they checked into a hotel in the small town of Odessa, north of Tampa. When a hotel employee became suspicious, police were called. FBI agents arrived on the scene the next day. Thomas and his girlfriend were arrested quietly. Another BLA member, Frank Fields, probably one of the three men who who attacked officers Curry and Benetti, ran, and an FBI agent opened fire. A bullet struck Fields in the eye, killing him. The implosion of John Thomas's cell scattered nearly 20 BLA militants all across the southeast. As a new year, 1972, dawned, Thomas sat in a Tampa jail awaiting bank robbery charges. Four others were behind bars in North Carolina. Andrew Jackson and two others, arrested in Atlanta, had managed to escape from a county jail and made their way to Florida as well, where they spent two months picking tomatoes alongside migrant workers in an effort to raise money for the bus fare back north. The others trickled back to New York in ones and twos. Marooned outside Tampa, Twyman Myers and the teenage Mark Holder stuffed dozens of guns into three suitcases, stole a car, and drove back. Holder was arrested with most of the guns in Philadelphia three weeks later. The sudden loss of a dozen men did little to dissuade the BLA members still in New York. If anything, it motivated them to strike back, to show authorities that they remained viable and strong. At the time, there were still at least two active New York subcells, both devoted to armed robbery, mostly of drug dealers and social clubs. Even before the loss of Thomas and so many of his men, one of these cells had also talked about heading south. In December, this group, led by a 28-year-old ex-Marine named Ronald Carter, embarked on a multi-state odyssey whose bloody climax would shake the city of New York to its core and and trigger a national debate about the BLA that would, in a small way, reverberate in the 1972 presidential primaries. The full story of the Carter cell has never been told. Only three members remain alive, and one, Blood McCreary, tells his version of events here for the first time. Because of the crimes involved, however, his account is incomplete and, in at least one regard, open to doubt. McCreary, for example, states that the Carter group chose to leave New York after the Shakur brothers, Lumumba and Zaid, decided to make a cell for Asada, that is, for Joanne Chesimard, the Thomas Cell's most prominent survivor. As McCreary tells the story, The group had hoped to receive guidance of some sort from Algeria. 
a meeting was arranged with Cleaver's emissary, the fiery poet Denise Oliver. That cell came about from Algeria, or it was supposed to, McCreary recalls. Denise had been over there, and she came back with instructions from Eldridge. You know, Algeria, they had some good ideas, but they didn't really run us. Anyway, Denise was to meet with us and give us the information from Algeria. Several of us, we all showed up to meet Denise. The meeting didn't go down because Asada wanted to get back to Atlanta because shit was going down there. But she didn't go. Things were too fucked up. So when she stayed, it was decided to create a new cell for Asada. This new cell, led by Carter and Chesimard, soon fled New York for Miami, which McCreary says was the plan all along. A more likely explanation for their sudden departure involves a bizarre episode in Queens on December 20, 1971. At 9.30 that morning, two patrolmen in a squad car spied four people in a green Pontiac, one woman and three men, parked in front of a banker's trust branch on Grand Grand Avenue at 49th Street, acting suspiciously. When the cruiser approached, the Pontiac pulled away from the curb. Following at a safe distance, the officers checked its license plate and discovered that the car had been stolen. When the, cruiser, when the cruiser lit its rolling lights, the Pontiac took off, racing to the corner of Flushing Avenue and 57th Street, where it turned southwest toward Brooklyn. As the chase continued, someone in the Pontiac rolled down a window and lobbed something toward the cruiser. It was, of all things, a hand grenade, an M26 fragmentation grenade to be exact, the kind used by the U.S. Army in Vietnam. To the officer's amazement, it exploded beside the cruiser, wrecking it. As the officers leaped, unhurt, from the burning car, the Pontiac rolled off toward Brooklyn, where a few minutes later its occupants jumped out, rushed toward a man at a Sunoco gas station, and stole his car. Later, the man identified Joanne Chesimard as one of his assailants. The NYPD immediately issued a 13-state alarm, calling for her arrest. As police suspected, the attack was almost certainly the work of Chesimard and the Carter cell. In the BLA's first-ever phone call to the press, a caller to United Press International, UPI, took credit in the name of the Attica Brigade of the Afro-American Liberation Army, Cleaver's name for the BLA, saying, We have more grenades and we will be back. The police dragnet would explain why Chesimard, Carter, McCreary, and three other comrades swiftly relocated to the Miami area. There, they rented an apartment in the beachfront city of Hollywood and began scouting banks. They probably didn't know that at that very moment, they had become the third BLA group at large in the state of Florida. They pulled off a quick bank robbery in Miami running out in less than five minutes. Much as John Thomas had done after his robberies in New York, the cell took its cash and began making plans. Carter and Chesimard, in fact, envisioned sharply expanding the BLA's reach, creating a string of safe houses across the Midwest. Within days, they had left Miami, scattering to rent apartments in Cleveland, Milwaukee, St. Louis, and Kansas City. Carter and McCreary then returned to New York, where they met with Zaid Shakur, who was still in touch with Algiers. They agreed that their immediate focus should be freeing those who had been captured, 
especially Deruba Moore and, at Chesamore's urging, her boyfriend, who had been arrested in Detroit. We were going to break them out, McCreary recalls. I went with Asada to Detroit and looked things over, but it was clear it would never work. It was obvious that we could never get near them. Afterward, members of the cell rendezvoused at their new Cleveland safe house, a set of three apartments on East 84th Street. Once it became clear that there was no easy way to free the prisoners, two new plans were sketched out. Both involved actions in New York. Cleveland was our new home, McCreary recalls, but New York City was to be our battleground. All through the first days of 1972, BLA members shuttled back and forth between Cleveland and New York. After the Thomas Group's shootout in North Carolina, they eschewed cars and began traveling by Greyhound bus. The drawback was the Pennsylvania State Police's penchant for boarding buses to search for drugs. Every time they came on board, you know? We were strapped, McCreary recalls with a shiver. Those were some pretty hot moments. In short order, the Cleveland cell grew in size to nine as McCreary tracked down three soldiers who had lost their way, including Twyman Myers, whom he stumbled across one night in the East Village, and a new recruit, Henry Shasha Brown. In Cleveland, they quickly went to work on an audacious plan that had originated with Cleaver and Don Cox in Algeria. Black guerrillas had launched a civil war in the South African country of Zimbabwe and the white-led government had responded with a string of indiscriminate killings. Cleaver suggested that the Cleveland cell attempt to storm the Zimbabwean consulate in New York. We wanted to make a signature statement in New York, something that would get us noticed internationally, says McCreary. So we scouted out the consulate. It was off Park Avenue in the 50s. We went in, and we could see it was going to be too much trouble. Too much traffic, it just didn't work out. So we found out the diplomats all lived in homes on Long Island, like in a compound. The place was guarded by these huge dogs, Rhodesian Ridgebacks. So we go out there to poison these dogs, and needless to say, it didn't work. And so we went to the alternate plan. And I don't want to talk about that. And with good reason. The Carter Cells alternate plan almost certainly led to one of the most gruesome murders in the history of New York. The night of January 27, 1972, was freezing. Frigid winter winds whistled down the garbage-strewn streets of New York's East Village. Snow was on the way. Down on Avenue B, two young patrolmen were walking their beat. Greg Foster, who was 22, was black. Rocco Lori, a year older, was white. The two had served together as Marines in Vietnam and, as close friends, had received permission to be partners, patrolling one of New York's most dangerous and drug-ridden neighborhoods. The two were walking south along Avenue B around 10.30 when they noticed a car parked in front of a hydrant. They ducked into a luncheonette across the street, the shrimp boat, and asked the owner if he knew the car. He stepped outside and shook his head no. Satisfied, Foster and Lori turned and began to walk back north. As they did, three black men passed, parting to allow the officers to walk between them. One of the men wore a long black coat. 
another a green fatigue jacket, and a black Australian-style bush hat. A moment after the officers passed, the three men suddenly turned and drew pistols, a thirty-eight automatic and two nine-millimeter automatics. Foster and Lori were a few strides away when the men began firing directly into their backs. Foster was hit eight times and fell in a heap onto the icy pavement. Six bullets hit Lori. All but one struck his arms and legs, but the last pierced his neck and he staggered forward, clutching at his throat before dropping to his knees and falling slowly onto his side. As the two men lay dying, their assassins marched calmly toward them. A witness later claimed one of the shooters hollered, Shoot him in the balls! And all three again opened fire. Three bullets were fired directly into Foster's eyes. Two were shot into Lori's groin. When both men lay still, two of the assassins reached down and wrenched loose their pistols. They ran toward a waiting Chrysler, while the third man, apparently intoxicated by the moment, reportedly danced a jig over the dead men's bodies, firing his pistol into the air Wild West style. Startled to be left behind, he ran off alone, disappearing into the night. The whine of police sirens echoed within minutes, and the first several officers to respond, all answering a disturbance call two blocks away, were quickly on the scene. What they found was stomach-turning. Greg Foster's head had been destroyed. A sludge of blood and brain matter formed a three-foot puddle around his corpse. Rocco Laurie had been shot to pieces, bullet wounds up and down his body. An ambulance took Laurie to Bellevue Hospital, where he died. Almost everyone who responded had the same thought. These were planned assassinations, no doubt by the same people who had murdered officers Piagentini and Jones eight months before, this so-called Black Liberation Army. It took only a few hours to confirm it. Fingerprints found in the getaway car suggested that the assassins were Ronald Carter, Twyman Myers, and at least one other member of the Cleveland cell. The Foster-Lurie murders presented Mayor John Lindsay's administration with much the same dilemma it had confronted after the first attacks the previous May. Within hours, in fact, a series of debates erupted within the police department and the mayor's office. Were these planned assassinations or something else? If they were the work of the same group behind the attacks in May, as was widely assumed, did this mean there actually was a genuine Black Liberation Army? Was there really a nationwide black conspiracy to murder policemen? And if so, should the public be told? What the police knew was this. Ten officers had now been attacked and seven killed in a nine-month span in New York, San Francisco, North Carolina, and Atlanta, seemingly all by one-time Panthers claiming to be a black liberation army. Some of these attacks were linked, some were not. Many in the NYPD believed that this constituted a legitimate national conspiracy. But others, including several aides in Mayor Lindsay's office, felt that the killings were unrelated. There was no black army, they argued. This was the work of a few disgruntled Panthers, borrowing a discarded Panther term to make it appear as if there was. The pivotal figure in these debates was a newcomer to the NYPD a deputy police commissioner named Robert Daly. 
Daly had been a New York Times reporter who had attracted the attention of police commissioner Patrick Murphy while writing a profile of him. When Murphy offered him the department's top public relations job, Daly accepted. He was a divisive figure, a publicity hound who, as the Times itself noted later, was always mugging for the cameras. What Daly loved most was a good detective yarn, and the story of the BLA was one of the best he had seen. Gunsmoke had barely cleared over Foster and Lori's bodies when he began arguing that the NYPD had an obligation to go public with its suspicions that the murders constituted a planned assassination by a national conspiracy of black militants. This kind of talk startled aides to Mayor Lindsay, who had announced his campaign for the presidency a month earlier. Talk of black terrorists loose on the streets would undercut his candidacy, inflame race relations, and have every cop in the city looking askance at young black men. Lindsay's combative press secretary, Tom Morgan, made clear to everyone that he didn't want to see a single word about black conspiracies in the press. Sworn by reporters the morning after the murders, the chief of detectives, Albert Seidman, went along, poo-pooing the conspiracy angle. But the next day, a Saturday, the UPI office received a handwritten communique signed by the George Jackson Squad of the Black Liberation Army. Mailed the previous day, it referenced the pigs wiped out in Lower Manhattan last night and promised, this is the start of our spring offensive. There is more to come. This was too much for Daly. That same afternoon, even as citizens in far-off Arizona were voting in the caucuses, in which Lindsay placed second to Edmund Muskie, Daly strode into an East Village precinct house and, standing before a bank of microphones, raised Rocco Lori's blood-drenched shirt for all to see. He called the murders assassinations, carried out by a conspiracy of urban guerrillas, black urban guerrillas. Always in the past, the police have been quiet about this conspiracy because of fear of accusations of racism, he said. But it isn't the black community that is doing this. It is a few dozen black criminal thugs. It's terribly serious, much more serious than people seem to think. The police are the last barrier before chaos. Suddenly the rhetorical cat was out of the bag. The mayor's people were apoplectic. But the New York newspapers, sensing a story too hot to handle, downplayed Daly's dramatic press conference. The Times buried the story on page 35. Talk of a black conspiracy ebbed for several days as reporters focused on the officers' funerals, which were massive affairs, with hundreds of uniformed officers lining Fifth Avenue in front of the St. Patrick's Cathedral. But Daly would not let up. In off-the-record chats all that week, he told reporters that there was a true national conspiracy, that the NYPD's intelligence, gathered over the previous seven months, confirmed the existence of a black liberation army, with hundreds of would-be assassins divided into revolutionary cells. For the most part, no one believed him. No one, at least, printed more of his theories. It was all too inflammatory, too far-fetched. Finally, a week after the murders, a Times reporter cornered a reluctant Commissioner Murphy. All available evidence, Murphy admitted, suggested that the Foster-Laurie murders were, in fact, the work not of a national conspiracy to kill police, but of roving bands of militants, 
crazies, Murphy termed them, who moved from city to city, murdering policemen. Daly, however, went much further. He told the Times there was a BLA that was nationwide in scope, adding, We have here a very, very dangerous and criminal conspiracy. The public really doesn't seem to be aware of it. The time is over when the police department should keep its mouth shut on this kind of thing. Working with incomplete information, neither man was entirely correct. The BLA was far too disorganized and far too decentralized to be called a true national conspiracy, but it was more than roving bands of crazies. Daly would not be deterred. Over the vocal opposition of the Manhattan District Attorney Frank Hogan, he persuaded Commissioner Murphy to hold an unusual press conference on Tuesday, February 8th, in which Murphy detailed the BLA's involvement not only in the Foster-Lori murders, but also in the May attacks and the attacks on policemen in San Francisco and Atlanta. He named nine BLA figures sought by police, including Ronald Carter, Joanne Chesimard, and Twyman Myers. Prosecutors had adamantly opposed going public, arguing that it would complicate any case they brought. The mayor's office objected as well, finally persuading Murphy not to use the word conspiracy. But the debate and the killings were far from over. The murders of Greg Foster and Rocco Lurie have never been officially solved, but there is little doubt that the killers came from Ronald Carter's and Joanne Chesimard's cell based in Cleveland. While political debates raged in Manhattan, Carter and his comrades poured over New York newspapers following the investigation. After two weeks, they began to fear they had stayed too long in one place. So we took a vote, Blood McCreary remembers. We decided to go to St. Louis. A safe house there was already in place. On Monday, February 14th, they rented a U-Haul truck, which the group crammed with furniture, books, mattresses, and personal belongings. The next morning, they left the city in a three-vehicle caravan heading toward St. Louis. On long trips, I drove, says McCreary, whose family was originally from South Carolina. I had the southern manners. You know, yes, sir, whatever you say, sir. Which we needed at toll booths or if we got stopped. Our younger guys, Twyman and them, they didn't have the manners. If a cop car stopped us, they always wanted to shoot. They reached the St. Louis safe house without incident. It was late afternoon, says McCreary. Later, we decided to go looking for out-of-state newspapers. Four of us went. Me, Twyman, Ronald Carter, and Shasha Brown. We drove downtown looking for a newsstand. That was a mistake. Seemed like everything was closed. Then I saw the cop's car. It was 9.30 p.m. when the two St. Louis patrolmen, cruising North Grand Avenue in a black neighborhood, spotted a green 1967 Oldsmobile sporting, of all things, a set of cardboard Michigan license plates. The cruiser lit its rolling lights. McCreary was behind the wheel. I said, we got lights, he remembers, and Ronnie leaned forward. He was in the back seat and said, be cool, just pull over. One officer hung back while the second walked to the driver's side window. We had all been taught that if you get stopped, the first thing you do is roll down all the car windows, McCreary says. That way, if you have to shoot, 
You don't want glass exploding all over you. So we rolled down our windows. I took out my wallet. When he came to the car, I had everything in my hand. Everything he needed was in my hand. But you know, it wasn't right. The car had Michigan temporary plates. It was registered in Florida. My driver's license was my alias, Frank Reese of Windsor, North Carolina. Poor cop. He was as confused as anything. He says, I'm going to have to ask you guys to step out of the car. And you know, I was doing everything I could to get out of this. I kept saying, why is that necessary? Why? We all had on shoulder holsters, McCreary said. Twyman was beside me in the front. I saw he had the 9mm between his legs. In the trunk, we had like 17 different guns. An M16, a bunch of Browning 9mm. I had a 357. Shasha had a 9mm. I'd been through several situations with Twyman, and I knew that when he was about to shoot, he always started rocking, rocking back and forth. And I realized he had started rocking in his seat. I'm talking to the cop, and I feel Twyman pulling at my sleeve. He wants me to lean back so he can shoot the cop. I know he's about to shoot, and I'm trying everything I can to make this cop go away. The cop keeps saying, get out of the car. I keep saying, officer, why is that necessary? All our papers are in order. Why is that necessary? And finally, you know, he had enough. He said, nigger, get out of the fucking car. And when he said that, I just leaned back. And all I saw then was red and blue streaks of fire going past my face. Twyman was shooting. And then, well, the whole car kind of exploded. The officer beside the car fell, struck in the stomach and legs. As the olds roared off, he fired all six shots in his revolver. As luck would have it, two narcotics officers were on a stakeout a block away and heard the shooting. They gave chase. Spying their pursuit, McCreary mashed the accelerator, hitting speeds close to 100 miles per hour, as the old zigzagged through narrow streets toward the Mississippi River waterfront. By the time he got there, there were four police cars behind him, their sirens echoing through the downtown streets. When one approached his fender, he swung the steering wheel violently to the left. The olds veered into a vicious turn, turning completely around until it hopped a curb, all four tires blown, and came to rest against a high chain-link fence bordering a vacant lot. When the car stopped, McCreary turned to face Ronnie Carter, only to find him slumped forward, a sick, gurgling noise coming from his throat. He'd been shot in the chest. An autopsy would later reveal that he had accidentally been killed by a BLA bullet fired by Shasha Brown. McCreary leaped outside. A hail of bullets drove him toward the chain-link fence. We were trying to get to the trunk, he recalls. If we could have gotten the M16 or the .30-06, we would have gotten away. Up and down the wide boulevard, policemen were crouching behind their cruisers, firing. The three BLA men ran to the fence. McCreary turned and provided covering fire as Myers and Shasha Brown climbed it and vaulted into the vacant lot. When he ran out of ammunition, McCreary threw down his pistol and surrendered. The police captured Brown a few blocks away, bleeding from a wound in his wrist. Only Twyman Myers managed to get away, disappearing into the night. In the first confused hours after the incident, there was nothing to link it to the BLA. Both McCreary and Brown gave false names. 
What triggered a barrage of early morning phone calls to New York was the discovery that a pistol Brown had thrown down had until two weeks before belonged to Officer Rocco Lurie. This changed everything. For the first time, the NYPD felt obliged to reveal everything they knew. At a press conference two days later, Commissioner Murphy called on the White House, the Attorney General, and the FBI to give the highest priority to the hunt for the foster Lurie assassins in the BLA. After Murphy spoke, the NYPD's Assistant Chief Inspector, Arthur Gruber, detailed the attacks on police in New York, San Francisco, and Atlanta, and gave reporters the most reasoned, lucid overview of the BLA to date. He noted, Intelligence fails to identify a formal structure of a firm organization known as the Black Liberation Army. It is more likely that various, ex- various extremist individuals, 75 to 100 in number, are making use of the name Black Liberation Army in order to give some semblance of legitimacy to these homicidal acts. These individuals form and dissolve and reform in small groups or cells. The NYPD might not want to call the BLA a true army, but what it described sounded martial enough. The Times' skepticism, for instance, began to fall away. The headline of its front-page story on February 17th was Evidence of Liberation Army Said to Rise. It was then, with its notoriety near a zenith, that the BLA went utterly silent. Not a single word would be heard again for months. Blood in the Streets of Babylon The Black Liberation Army, 1973. I understand I am slightly out of fashion. The in-crowd wants no part of me. Someone said that I'm two sixties. Black. Someone else told me I had failed to mellow. Poem by Joanne Chesimard, a.k.a. Asada Shakur. The year 1973 was pivotal in post-war U.S. history. The year the Vietnam War was effectively lost, the Watergate scandal unraveled, the 60s era finally ended, and the wave of student uprisings and radicalism, one author notes, ran its course. The movement was dead. Abby Hoffman, arrested on drug charges, went underground writing a travel column for Crawdaddy magazine about his clandestine life. H. Rapp Brown was in prison. Huey Newton fled to Cuba. Timothy Leary was arrested in Afghanistan and returned to give grand jury testimony against the weather underground. The previous autumn, the government of Algeria had finally thrown the Panthers out of their beloved embassy. Washing up in Paris... Eldridge Cleaver glumly told reporters the revolution was over. He had lost. A new conservative mood was afoot. A reaction to 60s excesses, especially the wave of drugs whose abuses and attendant violence had turned swaths of cities from San Francisco to New York into what the press liked to call war zones. Crime soared. The harsh Rockefeller drug laws passed in New York. The White House called for the death penalty. Nothing worked. It was, the author Andreas Killen notes, a genuine low point in American history. 
Nowhere was the clash between revolutionary diehards and a public newly incensed at drugs and violence more vividly on display than in the bloody final months of the Black Liberation Army. The BLA's last chapter began in the darkness before dawn on October 23, 1972. Lower Manhattan was quiet that morning, but deep inside the Manhattan House of Detention, the granite fortress known as the Tombs, seven men were busy at work, with hacksaw blades. One was Anthony Kimu White, a 24-year-old BLA recruit. White had been in jail since taking part in the Harlem shootout that helped give birth to the BLA, the Plate Stewart incident in April 1971. After a head count at 6.15 a.m., the seven men began sawing through four steel bars in their fourth-floor cell area. Once finished, they crawled across a 30-foot gangplank, spanning an unused area of the jail that had been damaged in a 1970 rebellion. At the end of the gangplank, the men crawled up a 16-foot wall to a tiny window, where they sawed through another set of steel bars. Squeezing through, they dropped a bedsheet ladder to a parking lot 40 feet below. A guard spotted them at 6.25 a.m., just as the last inmate leaped to the pavement and dashed into the gathering dawn. It was the first escape from the tombs since it opened in 1941, and though no one knew it, it would reinvigorate what remained of the Black Liberation Army in New York. Kimu White wasted little time reuniting with his comrades in the New York BLA cell, one of only two cells still at large. The other was a group of West Coast exiles robbing banks in the New Orleans area. The New York cell was down to 15 or so desperate members, hunted, scattered, constantly on the move among squalid apartments in Harlem, Brooklyn, and the Bronx. The wild-eyed Twyman Myers was one, along with his pals Avon White and Fred Hilton, who had rejoined the BLA after serving brief terms in North Carolina jails after the November 1971 shooting of a sheriff's deputy. To the extent that these last survivors had any true leadership, it had fallen to the unlikeliest field marshal in the annals of black revolutionaries, 25-year-old Joanne Chesimard, who was poised to become the most wanted female in New York history. Chesimard went by many names. Her family knew her as Joey. In underground circles, where she would become an icon, she would be known as Asada Shakur. She had grown up in Queens with a troubled mother, she was smart and pretty. Small and quiet, she had been a student at City College before she began running with the Panthers. She attended her share of protests, but otherwise little is known of her Panther career until an incident in March 1971, during the violence of the Panther split, when she was shot in the stomach during some kind of robbery at a midtown Manhattan hotel, probably an early BLA drug ripoff. She had been with Daruba Moore at 757 Beck Street, where she distinguished herself as a medic, and later with the BLA contingent in Atlanta. She was little known to the public during her years underground, but her notoriety skyrocketed once her career came to an end. It was then that the New York Daily News dubbed her Sister Love. It was then that the NYPD began referring to her as the heart and soul of the BLA. Whatever you called her, 
No one could deny she became a defining symbol of the underground era. Where Bernadine Dorn's name sometimes drew snickers from the most hardcore radicals, Chesimard would be viewed in the underground as perhaps the purest expression of revolutionary ardor. A ferocious, machine-gun-toting, grenade-tossing, spitting-mad Bonnie Parker for the 1970s. An archetype for a series of badass heroines heralded in Foxy Brown, Get Christy Love, and other black exploitation films of the day. It was a powerful image. In time, Chesimard's visage would hang alongside those of Che Guevara and Malcolm X on the walls of scores of revolutionary venues. But while she was an angry young woman who almost certainly robbed banks and conspired in attacks on policemen, Chesimard left many more questions than answers in her wake. Forty years ago, the NYPD cast her as the BLA's last and greatest leader, blaming her for scores of crimes. There proved precious little evidence to back up these assertions, however, and today the handful of detectives still investigating the old BLA cases question almost all of these claims. Chesimard, rasps one New York investigator, is no fucking saint. But was she the heart and soul of the BLA? Hell no. The guys back then demonized her because, unlike the others, she was educated. She was young and pretty. I can point to at least two other women in the BLA who were more important than Joanne Chesimard ever was. We created that myth. The cops did. Adds a longtime BLA attorney, Robert Boyle, Asada was never this massively important figure the police portrayed her as. She was important, but the police made up this mythic image of a super black woman with the afro and the machine gun. She was never that. Divining the truth about Chesimard is not easy. During the 1970s, few journalists took the trouble to learn her story. What little they wrote came from police, whose theories proved unsupportable. Since then, she has been the subject of two books, an autobiography and a memoir written by her aunt, who was also her attorney. Both are notable for dwelling solely on her early and later life, leaving a gaping hole where one expects to find details of her career with the BLA. What is known is that in 1972, in the months after the Foster-Laurie murders, Chesimard and the other BLA survivors limped back from St. Louis and Cleveland and Miami to the only city they knew, New York, and attempted to regroup. No coherent story of their lives that year has ever emerged, only allegations of various outer borough armed robberies that eventually led to trials and, typically, not guilty verdicts. When it was finally over, the FBI and the NYPD would take some barebone statements from captured BLA members, but the few documents that survived give little sense of the desperate lives they must have led. Typical was the statement given by BLA member Ronald Anderson, a veteran of the Atlanta training camp. Anderson was one of the three BLA men who escaped from an Atlanta jail in November 1971 and spent the following weeks picking tomatoes in Florida. According to his statement, the trio finally raised enough cash for the long bus trip back to New York in January 1972. They hid in a relative's home in the Bronx for a month, living on money from one of their mothers. After that, they split up. Lumumba Shakur found an apartment for Anderson and John Thomas's one-time number two, Andrew Jackson, 
on Dean Street in Brooklyn, where they lived with two Panther women who supported them by working as prostitutes in a Manhattan massage parlor. That spring, Anderson said, they finally met with Joanne Chesimard in the Brownsville section of Brooklyn. She said she was leading a bank robbery gang with Twyman Myers and two other BLA soldiers and offered them a place in it. Anderson insists that he declined. By the beginning of 1973, both the FBI and NYPD investigations of the BLA were languishing. In the ten months since the shootout in St. Louis, precisely two BLA members had been captured. When an NYPD lieutenant named James Motherway arrived at his new assignment in the Major Case Squad's 13th Division, he found morale among the detectives low. No fewer than eight groups were hunting the BLA at this point, including detective squads in Queens, Brooklyn, and the Bronx, plus district attorneys in Brooklyn and Queens, apparently without talking to one another, much less with the FBI. The NYPD was further hamstrung by two bugaboos of mid-1970s policing, the department's newfound sensitivities about race and a lengthy corruption inquiry. A snapshot of the situation is offered in Motherway's unpublished memoir. So what's the problem? He recalls asking the assembled BLA investigators one morning in early 1973. No one responded. At first, no one wanted to be seen as criticizing the department. The kiss of death, in Motherway's words. Maybe these pussies are afraid to talk, but I'm not, a bellicose detective named Joe Tidmarsh finally piped up. You want to know what's wrong? I'll tell you. The bosses won't turn us loose. We have a dozen leads they won't let us follow. Did you know we aren't allowed to go into Harlem after dark? No, Motherway said, skeptical. I didn't. Yeah, Tidmarsh went on. The deputy chief of detectives is afraid we'll cause a riot or shoot someone. It might ruin his chance for promotion. Another detective chimed in. Did you know we have a tap on Twyman Meyer's mother's phone? Last week we hear her telling her niece that she was going to meet Baby. That's Twyman. Here she is going to meet the guy we know has killed a half dozen cops and we couldn't tail her because it was nighttime in Harlem. Motherway left the meeting shaken. By coincidence, a few days later, the new chief of detectives, Louis Cattell, sent an inspector to find out why the BLA cases were stalled. Motherway was the last of the squad's lieutenants to be interviewed. Certain he was risking his career, he decided to relay the detectives' complaints. Three days later, the deputy chief was replaced. The squad now reported directly to Cattell. Morale rose. Detectives were allowed into Harlem at night. Suddenly, they began aggressively pursuing a host of new leads. One involved two BLA members, Woody Green and Kimu White, the tombs escapee. One detective learned that Green's wedding anniversary was January 23rd. Certain Green would see his wife, he asked for surveillance. Motherway approved it. That evening, detectives followed Green's wife to the Big T Lounge in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Sipping coffee in unmarked cars outside, they spotted Green walking into the bar at midnight. Two detectives, Cleve Bethea and Philip Hogan, were sent in to confirm the identification. As they entered, they made eye contact with Green, who was standing at the bar alongside White and a dozen patrons. 
Suddenly, both Green and White drew pistols in open fire. Hit by bullets in the left arm and leg, Bethea fell to the floor and passed out. Hogan, struck in the shoulder, rolled through the lounge's door onto the sidewalk. Nine detectives leaped from their cars, unsheathed pistols, and laid shotguns across the hoods of parked cars. Inside, the bar went quiet. The patrons flattened themselves on the floor. Within minutes, more than a dozen patrol cars began squealing to stops all around. When two detectives attempted to peer through the lounge's window, gunfire erupted from within, sending them scurrying for cover. Up and down the street, cops returned fire. Their bullets blasted the Big T lounge to shreds, smashing windows and riddling the walls behind the bar. When everything finally went quiet, a detective crawled through the front door. He found white and green dead on the floor. Miraculously, none of the other patrons were injured. To the press, it was just another BLA shootout. The Daily News carried the story on page 8, while the Times chose page 48. To Joanne Chesimard and the remaining members of the BLA, however, it was as if the NYPD had violated a months-long ceasefire. Months later, a rare glimpse of the group's inner workings at the time would be provided by a captured BLA soldier, Avon White. According to White, Chesimard convened a strategy meeting the night after the shootout in a ratty safe house apartment in the Bronx. She argued for immediate retaliation. The others a soldier named Melvin Kearney, Zaid Shakur, Freddie Hilton, agreed. That night, they stole a car in Brooklyn. Guns they already had. The next evening, Thursday, January 25th, a frigid north wind was blowing as two brothers, officers Carlo and Vincent Imperato, climbed into their radio car at the East New York Avenue station in Brooklyn. It was a routine patrol, at least until 7.45, when Carlo, who was driving, stopped at a red light on Newport Street. Glancing to his left, Carlo was startled to see a black man in a raincoat step out of a parked car and aim a rifle directly at him. It was a BLA man, Melvin Kearney. Duck! Carlo yelled. Bullets shattered the driver's side window. One struck Carlo in the left shoulder, and flying glass gashed his brother's arm. Vincent drew his revolver and squeezed off two shots as Carlo mashed the accelerator and the patrol car surged forward, barreling through the intersection. Behind them, Kearney kept firing. Police would find 23 bullet casings scattered on the pavement. The brothers drove themselves to a Brookdale hospital where they were treated and released. Cop brothers shot in Brooklyn ambush, screamed the Daily News headline the next day. The police commissioner, Patrick Murphy, chose his words carefully. We are very disturbed at this time because this was a deliberate attack without provocation. I'm very troubled, upset, and angry about this trend of violence shown against the police. This violence must cease. We ask the public to condemn this behavior. Everyone assumed it was the BLA. After a year in the shadows, the shooting thrust the group back onto the front pages. As it happened... The Imperado shootings came just days after a series of attacks in New Orleans in which a black radical named Mark Essex shot 19 people, killing nine, including five police officers. Some believed that Essex was a member of the BLA. Suddenly, the dormant debate about the BLA's existence reignited. 
In a lengthy article, the New York Times asked the central question, Are there really organized cells of blacks dedicated to the ambush of urban patrolmen? Or, if nothing that extensive, are there a handful of guerrilla assassins moving from city to city and getting help from friends along the way? Talk of conspiracy has become virtually a reflex response to such incidents in the last few years, and yet in no single case has it ever been substantiated. The Times polled police officials across the country. Some believed that the BLA was a nationwide conspiracy. Most scoffed at the idea. Whatever was happening, the NYPD was taking no chances. The morning after the Imperado shootings, Mayor Lindsay approved the police commissioner's plan to flood the northern sections of Brooklyn Brooklyn with officers allotted a thousand hours of overtime. Meanwhile, safely back in the Bronx, Chesimard, Zaid Shakur, and the others were incensed that the Imperado brothers had survived. They plotted a follow-up attack, this time determined to take a life. The reason being, Avon White told the NYPD months later, that the pigs did not die in Brooklyn. On the evening of Saturday, January 27th, two nights after the Imperado attack, the group split into two squads and walked out into the chilly night to hunt and kill a cop. Chesimard and Myers spent several hours canvassing the streets of the Bronx, but were unable to find a suitable ambush target. The second group, the same trio who had attacked the Imperados, took a stolen red GTO and patrolled Queens. Eventually, they parked on Baisley Boulevard in the St. Albans section and took their positions around an intersection, waiting for a patrol car to stop. Kearney sagged inside a phone booth. Across the way, Hilton hid a machine pistol beneath his coat. Shakur watched the oncoming traffic, nursing a hidden shotgun. Finally, a little past midnight, a patrol car containing two officers stopped in their sights. All three men whipped out their guns and began firing. The driver, Officer Roy Polina, ducked down and hit the gas, smashing into the fender of a car in front of him. A bullet grazed his forehead. As the firing continued, Polina regained his senses and raced from the scene. His partner suffered a shoulder wound. Police would find 28 shell casings at the intersection. The next day, confronted by two attacks in 53 hours, the mayor threw out any pretense of diplomacy. At a press conference, Lindsay announced that an extra 6,000 police officers were being hired at a cost of $13 million. Asked if he considered the BLA attacks a crisis situation, he replied, When you have a pattern like these vicious attacks on police officers, I would call it a crisis. No one is going to rest until this group is arrested and brought to justice. The newspapers began to change their tone. On January 26th, in a story pegged to the police shootings in New Orleans, the Times headline had read, Officials doubt a plot by blacks to kill white policemen. Three mornings later, after two new BLA ambushes, the headline read, Liberation Unit Rated as Murderous. The furor over the BLA's sudden legitimization climaxed two weeks later, when New York Magazine published an excerpt from a forthcoming book called Target Blue. It was written by none other than Robert Daly, the NYPD's one-time spokesman. He had resigned, and while it covered many topics, the most explosive parts dealt with the BLA. Using information gleaned while in office, 
Daly laid bare the story of the 1971 New York and San Francisco attacks and argued that they were the work of a single nationwide militant group. For the first time, the debate over the BLA washed into the national press, though many writers and book reviewers remained skeptical. As Gerald M. Astor, who termed Daly a pistol pack in flack with literary ambitions, noted in a review of Target Blue in Washington Monthly, Conspiracy claims by the cops have a bad habit of collapsing. A top police investigator of the recent assaults has said of the conspiracy theory, A few dozen guys in different places happen to know each other and share a certain affinity, so one of them sits down at a typewriter and taps out BLA. But in numbers and administrative structure, they don't make it an army. The irony was that Daly was largely correct. While hardly an army, the BLA was real, and it was a multi-state conspiracy, if a desperate and sloppy one. But the fact that the man promoting this idea was also promoting a book did little to convince the skeptics. Still, the growing acceptance of the BLA's existence, at least in New York, had an impact in the streets, where shootings by jittery policemen were becoming almost routine. Every day or two brought a new incident, most having nothing to do with the BLA. When gunfire struck a squad car on Long Island, the papers were filled with stories about the BLA invading the suburbs. It turned out to be a stray bullet from a firing range. A single day, March 6th, brought a pair of Bronx shootings. In the first, police tried to stop a gypsy cab they believed had been carjacked. When the car pulled over, three men jumped out and sprayed the cruiser with gunfire. This may well have been Twyman Myers and two Confederates. Police car blasted by Bronx gunmen, read the Daily News headline. Twenty minutes earlier, a pair of patrolmen cruising 168th Street thought they recognized Myers. When they called him by name, he ran. At Franklin Avenue, he tried to flag a cab. When the cab wouldn't stop, Myers turned and fired a pistol at the pursuing officers. One, William Hoy, got out and chased Myers on foot through crowds to Fulton Avenue until, after running for blocks, Myers vanished. It was him, Hoy said later. I know his picture better than my own kids. In those tense, late winter weeks, BLA soldiers emerged as New York's new boogeymen, spotted at every robbery, blamed for every unexplained shooting. Myers was one of three BLA soldiers named in the April 10th robbery of a bank on Northern Boulevard in Queens. Another, named Victor Cumberbatch, was so spooked that he pulled a gun on two telephone repairmen, thinking they were police. The Brooklyn District Attorney tried to indict him for kidnapping. Other soldiers were blamed for a string of supermarket and bodega robberies. When a new police commissioner, Donald F. Cawley, took office that April, one of his first actions was to summon the chief of detectives, Louis Cattell, into his Center Street office and make clear his top priority. The Black Liberation Army, Cawley growled. Get the bastards. He added, Louis, think big. Cattell, in turn, brought in a plumpish, sandy-haired deputy chief named Harold Shriver, a 27-year NYPD veteran. Given wide latitude to apprehend the BLA's leadership, Shriver consolidated the three detective squads working BLA cases. To analyze the myriad threads of information the squads had gathered, 
he hit upon the novel idea of entering it all into a Hazeltine 2000 computer he arranged for the department to rent. Two detectives were sent to training courses to figure out how to use it. Detectives were still mastering the computer's intricacies when, on May 2nd, the word came from New Jersey. It was Joanne Chesimard. Later, there would be considerable speculation about where they were headed. The BLA's last two intellectual leaders, Joanne Chesimard and little Zaid Shakur, the field mouse, who was a long way from the moment when Jane Fonda bailed him out of jail three years before. Some said they were heading to hide with family members in Philadelphia or Atlantic City. Others thought they were en route to Washington. Their destination, however, was beside the point. What mattered was their desperate need to escape the police dragnet in New York and the poor choices they made that night of May 2nd in order to do so. In fact, they were breaking every rule of underground survival. They were driving in a car, they were driving at night, and worst of all, they were driving on the New Jersey Turnpike, a highway, then as now, where state troopers had a reputation for stopping and searching cars driven by black men. A little before midnight, they drove out of the city and stopped their battered white Pontiac Le Mans for snacks at the Alexander Hamilton rest stop north of Newark. 45 minutes later, at 12.45, they were speeding south, passing through the central New Jersey city of New Brunswick, when they saw the trooper behind them, lights rolling. Their driver, a one-time panther named Clark Squire, pulled to the side of the highway. The trooper, 29-year-old James M. Harper, called for backup even before approaching the car, which was standard procedure. He later said he stopped the car because it had a faulty taillight. A second trooper, 35-year-old Werner Furster, pulled up moments later. As it happened, the three cars were now lined up barely 200 yards south of state police headquarters. Trooper Harper took Squire's driver's license, then asked him to stand behind the car with Trooper Furster. Harper leaned into the car to examine the serial numbers of the driver's side door. As he did... He noticed that the woman sitting in the front seat seemed fidgety. The small, light-skinned man in the back seat sat frozen, his eyes glassy. Suddenly, from behind the car, Furster said, Jim, look what I found. Harper looked back and saw Furster holding up a clip from an automatic pistol. He quickly turned his attention back to the man and the woman inside the car and told them not to move. He saw Joanne Chesimard reach beneath, beneath her right leg. A moment later, the gun was in her hand. She fired from barely three feet away. Her eyes went wide open. Her teeth were showing, Harper testified months later. She fired a shot. I felt the pain in my shoulder. Staggering, Harper managed to draw his revolver and fire several shots into the car, striking both Chesimard and Zaid Shakur. One bullet struck Shakur flush in the chest, mortally wounding him. Behind the car... Clark Squire and Trooper Furster began grappling. At some point, Squire grabbed Furster's gun and shot him in the head. Harper, now outnumbered three to one, ran for the headquarters building. As he did, Squire jumped back into the Le Mans and drove off. When Harper reached the building, he managed to say, I've been shot, before collapsing. A description of the Le Mans was immediately broadcast. 
Minutes later, a trooper saw it parked on the side of the turnpike, five miles south. As he screeched to a stop, he saw a man running away toward a wooded area. He yelled for him to halt, then fired a wild shot when he didn't. Squire was found hiding in nearby woods the next day. The trooper found Chesimar lying beside the car, bleeding lightly from a wound in the chest, and Shakur, who was dead. Chesimard was taken to a hospital where she recovered. The next day, Joanne Chesimard's face, puffy, with full lips and a medium afro, stared out from the front of every New York newspaper. The daily news coverage spread across six pages, two just of photos. It was a singular moment in underground history. The first time the press was obliged to introduce and attempt to explain a black revolutionary and an attractive woman at that, to a mainstream audience. The Daily News termed Chesimard not only the high priestess of the cop-hating Black Liberation Army, but a Black Joan of Arc. The Times called her the soul of the BLA. Yet even then, the news failed to catch the national imagination. As it had from the start, the BLA remained largely a New York story. It would take time for Chesimard's legend to spread. Two contrasting funerals ensued. In East Brunswick, New Jersey, the governor led a crowd of 3,500 mourners at Trooper Werner Furster's simple 20-minute service. His body was taken to a cemetery in in a procession of 500 police cars. Meanwhile, in Harlem, Zaid Shakur, his body wrapped in a white shroud, lay in state at the Marcus Jackson funeral home. Hundreds of people, almost all of them black, filed past, Flyers outside urged readers to support the Black Liberation Army. Joanne Chesimard's capture was a crushing blow for the dozen or so BLA members still hiding in New York. Eldridge Cleaver's one-time courier, Denise Oliver, now living underground with the BLA's Andrew Jackson, wrote of their mounting desperation in a diary the NYPD later discovered. Each day brings only more bad news. More deaths, more captures, she wrote. Old friends hit the dust and were helpless, in touch with nothing but the TV. Sexless, but comrades. The day after Chesimard's capture, she wrote, I don't know if Jackson turning himself in is the answer, but to, but to keep running seems futile. In the end, jail or death is the resolution, so why postpone it? Both the FBI and the NYPD now working together, sense the momentum shifting. In my view, the BLA and related groups are hard-pressed to find the type of home-based support they need to conduct their terrorist tactics at this time. New York's police commissioner, Don Cauley, wrote in a memo to his top men on May 30th, In short, they are on the run and appear to be leaderless. The best defense is a good offense. We should quickly move forward and place as much pressure on these revolutionaries as possible. Suddenly, doors began opening. That spring, either just before or after Chesimard's capture, three FBI agents who had been working BLA cases since the beginning, Jim Murphy, Bob McCartan, and a youngster named Danny Colson, secured an informant. We really believed in pursuing informants. That had been our highest priority for two years. McCartan recalls. And finally, you know, we got one. The informant was a jailed BLA member's girlfriend, 
She too faced charges and began cooperating with the FBI to avoid them. Her identity, which has never been revealed, is being withheld here as well. The woman is alive today and in her 60s. The informant, who remained in contact with several other group members' companions, furnished tips that allowed the FBI to identify a series of BLA hideouts and rendezvous points. The first involved a meeting between two of the BLA's most wanted members, Freddie Hilton and Twyman Myers, the teenagers who had assassinated Officer James Green in Atlanta in 1971. The pair was planning to meet on the morning of June 7th on New Lots Avenue in Brooklyn. Both the FBI and the NYPD were waiting. A vivid glimpse of what happened next was given in Danny Coulson's 1999 memoir, No Heroes. The FBI contingent was holed up in an elderly gentleman's apartment across the street. I don't take to no cop killers, the man explained, so you can use this place. A group of NYPD detectives dressed as a construction crew sprawled across a stoop down the street. As the FBI men watched, the cops cracked open two six-packs of beer and lazily passed them around. Up and down the street, FBI agents and NYPD officers crawled into sniper positions along the rooftops. A few minutes before 11, Freddie Hilton appeared, as promised. He walked halfway up the block and peered down toward the construction crew, which made a little show of guzzling their beers. In the apartment above, Danny Coulson took out a three hundred eight caliber Remington sniper rifle and trained it on Hilton's chest. Through the scope, he could make out the slight bulge on Hilton's hip. Murph, he radioed Jim Murphy, put it out that he has a pistol in his waistband, left side, butt forward. Suddenly, the distant cry of a police siren could be heard. As the FBI men exchanged glances, it drew nearer. On the sidewalk, Hilton glanced up and down the street, then studied the surrounding buildings. Colson eased back into the darkened apartment. As each moment passed, the siren grew nearer, until, to Colson's dismay, a patrol car appeared at the head of the street. Shit, there it is, down to our left, an FBI man whispered. Once again, Colson trained his rifle on Hilton's chest, ready to fire if he made a move toward the approaching car. As the others watched, the patrol car slid down the street. As it approached Hilton, he edged into the shadow of a doorway. The car passed him and came to a stop 60 feet beyond in front of the building at 440 New Lots. Hilton stepped out of a doorway and watched as two uniformed officers got out, trotted up the steps, and disappeared inside. With Colson's rifle still trained on his chest, Hilton, evidently curious, sauntered down toward the patrol car. As he did, shots rang out from the rooftop. Hilton jumped in surprise and craned his neck skyward. He never saw the two NYPD detectives who barreled into him from behind, tackling him to the pavement. It took several minutes for everyone to understand what had happened. As it turned out, a woman living at 440 New Lots had seen plainclothes officers on her roof and, mistaking them for burglars, called the Liberty Avenue station, which dispatched the patrol car. The responding officers crept up a stairwell to the roof entry where, Through a crack in the door, they glimpsed what appeared to be a man pointing a shotgun at them. One officer fired three shots through the door, hitting 44-year-old William Jakes of the Major Case Squad in the stomach. 
We're police officers, the men on the roof shouted. The officer in the stairwell tossed his police hat through the door. A badge came whistling down the stairs in response. It was friendly fire. Fred Hilton was handcuffed, bundled into a police car and taken for fingerprinting, after which he was shoved into a car full of FBI men for the short drive to to a federal magistrate. So who are you guys? Hilton asked at one point. Colson, Murphy, and the others introduced themselves. Oh, I heard of you guys, Hilton said, daring a smile. We know who's chasing us, you know. Fred, Colson said, if you know our names, why didn't you just call us and surrender? Our number's in the book, you know. You guys just don't get it, do you? Hilton snapped. We're at war. The people are at war with this fascist government. I'm a soldier on my side, and you guys are soldiers on your side, and we won't ever surrender. Colson twisted to face him. No, Freddy, we're not at war, he said. If we were at war, you'd have a great big hole in your chest from my rifle. Fred Hilton said no more. Once again, Twyman Myers had gotten away. But later that day, Jim Murphy got a follow-up tip from their informant, this one on the BLA's dashing Andrew Jackson. According to the informant, Jackson was holed up with Denise Oliver in a flat at 158th and Amsterdam Avenue in Harlem. FBI agents surrounded the building the next morning. Jim Murphy and another agent swung a battering ram, knocking the apartment's door off its hinges. An agent named Errol Myers barged inside, then into the bedroom, where Jackson was in bed with Oliver. Slowly, he put up his hands. Don't shoot, men, he said. Don't shoot. After three high-profile arrests orchestrated by the FBI, it was time for the NYPD's retooled, computerized BLA squad to make its mark. The good news, as far as Chief Harold Shriver was concerned, was that there were only a handful of hardened BLA soldiers still at large. The bad news was that they were the most desperate and dangerous of all. In mid-September, days after the one-time Panther Herman Bell and several others were arrested for a string of bank robberies in New Orleans, the New York Transit Police received a tip that a BLA soldier named Robert Seth Hayes, wanted for shooting a transit cop that June, was holed up in a tenement apartment at 1801 Bryant Avenue in the Bronx. Surveillance suggested that a number of people appeared to be living with him, including three women and at least one infant. Early in the evening of September 17th, police quietly surrounded the building. The apartment a double-sized unit with doors labeled B and C, was on the first floor. Just before 8 o'clock, a group of nine NYPD detectives carrying battering rams hustled inside the building and rushed the two doors. Door B, a metal door, refused to budge, but after two strikes from a battering ram, neither would door C. At that point, someone inside the apartment opened fire with a shotgun. One final heave of the battering ram and door C flew open. Six detectives rushed into the dim apartment, whose sole adornment appeared to be a poster of George Jackson on one wall. Hayes emerged from a bedroom, holding a shotgun at his waist. He fired, striking a detective named Melvin Betty in the hand. Betty staggered back into the corridor. The apartment erupted in gunfire as Hayes disappeared back into the bedroom, the detectives firing wildly in his direction. Inside, a woman began screaming, My baby! My baby's in here! It was Bedlam. 
Two detectives tried to duck into the living room, only to be driven back by fire from an unseen gunman. Hayes poked his shotgun out from the bedroom door and fired another blast. A pair of detectives grabbed the smoking barrel, pushed Hayes back inside the room, and tackled him on a bed as a woman and her 17-day-old daughter screamed in a corner. For a moment, the apartment was silent. Detectives furiously reloaded their weapons, at one point sliding pistols across the floor to beef up their arsenal. Suddenly, a detective named Maximo Jimenez, struck by a glancing bullet in the buttocks, saw something rolling out of the living room toward him. It was a smoke bomb. Thinking fast, Jimenez reached out his foot and kicked it back into the living room, which began to fill with smoke. We were shouting things like, You're surrounded! Throw out your guns and come out with your hands up! One detective later told the Daily News. What they were shouting back wasn't printable. After several more staccato exchanges of gunfire, someone from within the living room shouted, We give up! Coughing and hacking, two BLA soldiers, Melvin Kearney, wanted in connection with the police shootings early that year, and Avon White, walked out, hands in the air. The trio's three girlfriends eventually scurried out through the smoke as well. Three detectives were wounded. In a press conference afterward, Police Commissioner Cawley, overjoyed, called the raid a monumental event. It was almost over. With most of the BLA now off the streets, the head of the major case squad, Harold Shriver, decided to make an all-out effort to bring in the last and deadliest of its gunmen, Twyman Myers. The morning after the Bronx gunfight, the FBI named him to its 10 most wanted fugitives list. Leads came in slowly, most on buildings in the South Bronx where Myers had been seen. They found apartments on 117th and 118th streets that he had used months earlier. Finally, in October, they unearthed a hideout on 116th Street that hadn't been reoccupied in the weeks since Myers had left it. The apartment was filthy, strewn with trash and infested with rats. In the garbage, detectives found a receipt for a money order issued by a store in the Bronx. At the store, a clerk handed over the original order made out to a real estate company. A visit to the real estate company revealed that the money had been used to rent an apartment at 263 West 118th Street, which had also not been reoccupied since Myers had last used it. Inside, detectives found a copy of the Amsterdam News with the page carrying apartment listings torn out. They concluded that Myers was using it to rent his hideouts. Unfortunately, there were more than 100 listings in every issue, far too many to canvas. Then, on November 7th, came the break. One of Myers' bank-robbing partners, Joe Lee Jones, surrendered to the FBI on an old charge of deserting from the Army. NYPD detectives interrogated him the next day. Jones, who was deathly afraid of Myers, said Myers moved apartments every few weeks. He had no idea where he was. But he mentioned a remark by Myers' girlfriend in which she spoke of moving into a freshly painted flat. Detectives checked the Amsterdam news. Only 11 places were advertised as newly painted. It took six days to rule out 10 of them. On November 14th, they discreetly interviewed neighbors around the 11th, a third-floor set of rooms in a tenement at 625 Tinton Avenue in the Bronx. From their descriptions, the occupants had to be Myers and his girlfriend. 
Both the NYPD and the FBI sent every man they had. By early afternoon, when the girlfriend left the building and was positively identified, there were nearly 150 policemen and federal agents in the area, about a dozen undercover men on Tinton Avenue itself. Armed with flak jackets, shotguns, and automatic weapons, they were ready for war. The day stretched by with no sign of Myers. Finally, around 7.15 p.m., a man wearing a ski cap emerged from the building. He looked like Myers. It was, in fact, Myers. Unaware of the small army around him, he strolled around the corner onto 152nd Street, then disappeared into a bodega. When he came out, a detective named Colonel Holland was closest to him. Holland knew that Myers usually carried an automatic pistol beneath his coat. When Myers turned down the street, Holland stepped forward, grabbed his arm, and barked, Freeze! Police! Myers wheeled. His eyes met Holland's and widened. He took two steps back, pulled a 9mm submachine gun, and opened fire. Holland rolled to the pavement and shot back. The quiet Bronx neighborhood exploded as FBI men and plainclothesmen up and down the street drew their guns and fired. Wounded, Myers wildly fired his 9mm, then frantically drew a second submachine gun from beneath his coat. It was no use. No one could have survived the blizzard of bullets directed his way. Twyman Myers, out for a stroll on a cold New York night, was cut to pieces. His funeral in Harlem made a deep impression on any number of white radicals who attended. The young Italian emigre Silvia Berardini, who would later rob banks alongside black militants, gave a friend a religious icon to place inside his coffin. You had to run this gauntlet of police sharpshooters to go into the funeral, she remembers. Seeing all those sharpshooters on practically every rooftop in Harlem, you realize there really was a war going on. I think that was the day I decided to join them. It was over. The shooting, at least. A few stragglers would pull a bank job or two in the coming months, but the BLA's days as a legitimate urban guerrilla force were at an end. The trials of its members would stretch on for years, with one or two serving as rallying points for what remained of the radical underground. The memory of the BLA itself blurred, and then dimmed, and then in the minds of an American public that took little notice of it anyway, winked out altogether. Even in custody, BLA fighters refused to surrender. Henry Shasha Brown, captured in St. Louis, managed to escape, but was recaptured a week later. Melvin Kearney, held on the eighth floor of the Brooklyn House of Detention, tied together bedsheets and shimmied out a window, only to fall to his death when they unraveled. Forty-two years later, six one-time BLA fighters remain alive in U.S. prisons. The murders of Greg Foster and Rocco Lurie of the NYPD remain officially unsolved. Of the dozens of one-time Panthers who had served in the BLA, only a handful would soldier on, and only one would make his mark doing so. In 1973, still a fugitive, Still the only veteran of Eldridge Cleaver's Algerian adventure vowing to continue the struggle, the man known as Sekou Odinga melted into the shadows of New York City and, with a handful of recruits, began robbing banks. And that's good for now. I will read part two of this tomorrow. Thanks for listening.
Everybody thinks we're wrong But our mother Who are they to judge us? Mother, mother Simply call me sweet Where I hell on Mother, mother